0: Alright, Adam, I was thinking a lot when we uh started covering the Yuan episode. I mean, we did the lizard folk last week. This week we're doing Yuan and and covering kind of that scaly kind. And we we spent a little bit of time saying, hey, what is the inspiration for how your lizard folk look? Are they crocodilian? Are they like gecko kind shit? We had that small discussion. I had that same kind of thought when it comes to Yuan T. Are they more King Cobra? Python, Anaconda? Like when you're Flavoring your snake people, what kind of snake do you first draw on? Shall we roll? In the box, Dan. Wow, we both rolled natural ones. Off to a stellar
1: start. Snake eyes, Dan. We rolled snake eyes Aye. on the UNG. I uh, got a fifteen. You I got got a, a sixteen. Uh, penis, obviously. Penis covered. Like that's the snake. Trouser snake. That's what we're. The cut or uncut. Uh, well, if it's a king cobra style. I think
2: we could just cut it right there. It's a Mimic, the Roundtable Dungeons & Dragons discussion podcast, where you never know what you're going to get.
0: Welcome to another episode in our conversation on mob mentalities, where we look at some of the slithering humanoids out there that make up the enemy armies in Dungeons & Dragons. I'm Dan, and with me today is Adam, and this episode is called U.N.T. Cults, Pyramid Schemers... I'm super proud of that one. Oh, okay. That one's one of my favorites so far. No, you know what? You've had some gems. Uh, this one feels middling. You, uh, you do it from now on then, Dan. I'd rather not. Anyways, we've reached out to can't. our army... <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> we've reached out to our army of friends and allies to break down what a U.N.T. cult looks like in 5th edition. For now, though, let's jump into the basics. So, as we said in the cold open, Adam, the... Um, you want to are the other side of that lizard scaly folk coin that we see as playable races. I
1: hard disagree. I don't think it's a coin. This is something radically different than the lizard folk. Like if you're going to have the scaly races, then I mean, are you including kobolds? Yeah. And dragonborn?
0: It's like a, it's a more of a cube than a coin, I guess.
1: uh, uh, Okay. That's a square. (laughs) Cube has six sides. Anyway, uh, beside the point. Anyway, listen.
0: So we're going to talk uh, mainly about Yuan-Ti
1: uh, and, and the,
0: the survey about them today. Uh, more, a lot, more about their history than anything else. And, and that's how we're going to start off. yuan aren't just your normal scaly snake folk that raised up as snake folk from way past, right? They don't have that same kind of origin dwarves and elves and, and orcs have. No, yuan were once humans In eras gone, if you are in the Forgotten Realms, if you're traveling around Toril or Faerun or whatever you want to call it, um, this is like pre-Netheril era, which is where a lot of the Forgotten Realms are forgotten, right? So Yuan-Ti were once humans who worshipped snake gods. Um, They worshipped the serpent's poise and its flexibility. But also, really focused in on its detachment from emotion, very specifically. Um, And they believed themselves, because of this detachment, that they were the most enlightened of humanoids and of all mortals, really. Um, They were incredibly decadent and wealthy and expansionistic. Um, They had great. Is that a
1: word? Expansionistic. I'm making it a word. Expansive?
0: Uh, See, expansive just. Makes it seem like their borders were large. And it was... Or
1: they were very, very prone to being fat.
0: Yeah, right? No. But okay. no, I'm saying like, they were never satisfied with where their borders sat. They always wanted more power, more kingdom, more rule over others. They're countries.
1: like colonial.
0: Uh, but
1: far, Colonizing.
0: Yeah, but far more violent.
1: So British. Uh, Traditionally
0: British. I mean, yeah, I would almost say Roman with it
1: i don't know man ask india yikes
0: anyways um this whole roman feel i think fits with them as well because it has they they focused a lot on these grand temples and coliseums and these large structures i don't think the british empire really had a lot of like no they just had other peoples i guess that's true anyways uh they were also superior in technology to the other cultures around them now when the general populace of uh, intelligent humanoids in their era were still mastering fire and cudgels and shit. These guys were walking around with steel weapons, right?
1: Okay, I gotta pause you because this is the thing that pisses me off more than anything else. UNT don't make sense in my brain. No, they don't either. Because me. because this is completely, by itself, when it's insular, great. Like, I, the lore is flavorful and fun and whatnot. Humans are the new race in the forgotten realms. Yeah. What the fuck were the elves and dwarves doing at this point? Well, they were well, the elves are learning fire, the yuan-ti are around. That doesn't make any sense to me. Right? So there's a real disconnect here with the other like fantasy races around. I think you could justify
0: it by saying that the world was the same size but these groups were far more isolated because populations were lesser Right, So your elves were still around, but they were far more secluded and in their own little areas. And when you talked about on T, they do occasionally mention elves and how they ran into elves. But they never mention dwarves. But that's probably because dwarves, especially in their earlier days, were very isol- isolationistic.
1: Okay, you are making up words making up all wh- over the place. I, but it, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. I still don't think it makes a lick of fucking sense. But. But. Yeah. Here we are with it. I mean, I'm just gonna compare it against other humans. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah.
0: Where their advances and their um attitudes on expansion really come in is their idea of how their worship came through. And this is when you start feeling a lot of that now more modern UNT feel. Um, their worship became fanatical, and their priests were the ones that ran their societies. Um they as they expanded these, they would build these central temples higher and higher, eventually um, resulting to communicating with these ancient serpent gods that they had who taught them the rituals to become more snake-like themselves.
3: So this
1: is still humans at this point? This is still humans at this point.
0: Yeah. Now, um, these ancient snake gods that taught, taught them these things started to inform them that cannibalism and uh, humanoid sacrifices and straight up breeding with snakes... ...were things that you could do. Do not Google that. Don't Google that, please. So, the yuan society started to sacrifice humans and cannibals... As, as you do, right? Yeah. So, they would kill people, then eat their flesh, and then perform sorcerous rituals in wriggling pits of live snakes, but naked, that let them mix their flesh with the snakes. And a lot of these rituals still exist to this day in yuan societies. And, and snake cults.
1: Uh, Asterix, for those of you listening, if you're going to have naked sacrifices, clear it with your table in your session zero first. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Um, so the one thing about this is that these rituals are incredibly cost
1: prohibitive.
0: Um, and, and you see that with the different stages of what a yuan can be. Um, the more snake-like you get, the more cl- uh, the closer to your god you are, the higher in power you are. And that's kind of how the UNT works. So, like on one end, you have your UNT pure bloods, which is the playable race, but they are the ones who are more humanoid than snake. So they often function as spies and stuff, and they go to intermix with normal human society. But they're respected; they're above the slaves. But they're in terms of UNT society, they pure, tend to be pure
1: blood is people. not a good thing. No, Ugh, like, no, it, it's it, not. That's a racial slur. In, in yeah. UNT society. There are some slaves that can work themselves up to being
0: equal to purebloods in yeah. UNT society. But on the other side, you have the anathema? Anathema? Anathema. Anathema and the abominations, right? And these are the guys who, yeah, they're more snake than people, yeah. right? So, I mean, you really see this. And to gain in steps, you have to get the materials And perform this ritual as a a smaller step. It feels very devil-like in that respect as well. Ah, no,
1: that's too Christian for me. This feels like the... Well, no, uh, like
0: how how 5e works with devils. How, you know, as you up in rank, you change your form. That is kind of what it's like in Uantese society. As you up in rank, you're changing your form. You go from like a pureblood to a malison, and all the way up to an anathema or a abomination, right? And you have to do this ritual. Whereas in fiendish hell, like devil culture, you start off as a lemur. No. Yes. Yeah. And you work your way up from like barb devil to...
1: Yeah, yeah. But the difference is that another devil will grant you the power to raise you up in rank. And it's very difficult to do. This is rituals you're getting almost like warlock patron level. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and it is the same ritual. Like it's not... This like, is this is not an evolution. This is a magical shit that's happening to you.
0: Yeah. And I mean you see that eventually over the uh um over the years this focus on being a snake this evolution into being a snake is um eventually cost them their humanity in a sense. And they got too big, too powerful, too focused on this and that is what caused the downfall of their society. So, these rituals although they still exist um caused a cultural ascension of sorts amongst the yuan Um, Those who didn't partake in the ascension were forced to become slaves or food as uh, cannibalism um, went absolutely rampant throughout their entire society. It was crushed to the minimal form it is now by the armies of outside civilizations finally having enough of their shit. And with all of this infighting within the yuan um group... Um, these outside societies came in and crushed them down, and this is where you see a lot of presence of elves leading the previous humans. Like there's kind of a Lord of the Rings feel to this.
1: Yeah, the other thing to keep in mind here too is that Uonti do not have like a king. No, they are very much all living together because they're exiles from society. But there are different worships and different, um, different sects and cults within the Uonti themselves. I'm going to get into that in the next episode. Okay. So, in a week, jump, jump, yeah. jump into the future yeah. and, and go listen to that. But, um, but one of the things to really keep in mind is that the leaders of the cults, the leaders at the temples and whatnot, can, are usually at war with leaders of other temples within the same city. Right? Oh yeah, yeah. It's very much. Faction versus faction in a UNT society. I mean, you could have a full campaign
0: because a lot of these massive temples that they built in the ancient times when they were a more uh, established and powerful society, um, these temples grew into full city states in size, right? Like these things were huge.
1: I'm going to say that with the exception of um, goblins, drow, and giants, this was probably one of the more complex and complicated like societal structures that we see in D&D. Yeah, it's definitely the most fleshed out to it.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um but so these massive city-states um were kind of their base level of uh power and they would let other societies have their stuff as long as it didn't conflict with the Yuwanti snake god. And we've we've seen this with a couple other things. Hobgoblins kind of do the same thing. Where uh, you could keep your gods as long as you worship ours first. Yeah. Right? It's kind of the same thing. So they held their power in this way for centuries. Um, even having steel before it was common knowledge, like we mentioned before, and the most powerful mages. A lot of the spells we have today were um, created, were pioneered by yuan and Netheril wizards. Right? So... That's kind of where we see a lot of these spells. That's why we have a lot of these transmutative spells come from yuan t cultures. At least that's the way I like to put it. Um, Now, they also held wealth as a high regard because snakes like shiny things, apparently. So they often fought. That's
1: fucking news to me. Right. That's weird, but okay.
0: So they would often fight dragons for their stockpile of riches. But the thing that really threw me for a loop was Naga.
1: Yeah, Naga and UNT are, like, arch nemeses.
0: Yeah, and I've always, like, been, all right, so you have a... When I'm building homebrew encounters, I'm like, well, those are snake things, and that's a snake thing, so they go well together. You're snake racist. I mean, rude, but yeah. I mean, it it surprised me that Naga were uh, that different. Now, for those of you listening to the podcast who don't know what Naga are,
1: um, they're... They're snakes with with people faces. Snakes with people faces. But they're um, really magical. They're very different. They're monstrosities, and they're they're their own unique, crazy brand of batshit insanity. Um, I I do not like them as part of the UNT. I like that they're their own weird, separate thing. Especially because some of them can be good. We'll do an episode on them in the future. Yeah, we we certainly will.
0: Anyway, so when these opposing nations uh, took back their lands from U1T grip uh, in this massive war, this massive. Push against the yuan um, It's sh- they mostly shattered all their buildings to dust and forced the T to hide in this in these temples and city states for so long that they no longer held the same level of threat they had before. Now you really see this in the fact that a lot of these T strongholds in like the modern age D and D, you'll often have like a elven strongholds somewhere close by or human cities somewhere close by who are keeping a watch on the yuan The yuan T, like, yeah, they like to kind of hide through and, and, and be sneaky in their jungles, but people know they're there.
1: Yeah, the other thing that I really like about that is, okay, so you know why the Forgotten Realms is called the Forgotten Realms?
0: Oh, well, yeah, yeah.
1: Because it's a bunch of crumbling societies that have come from previous eras and whatnot. And, and you they've see got this temples with, like, the Neferil and the yuan and it builds up through yeah, there. yuan T is one of the perfect examples of when you end up going to get the magical crystal from beneath the jungles of the... It's probably a crumpled yuan temple, and it's going to be a bunch of snake shit. Yeah. And that is one of the standards for D&D. You don't get, you know, ancient orc settlements, but you do with yuan Which I really like, and not just because I'm a big Indiana
0: Jones fan, because yes, snakes, it's got to be snakes. Um, But also that otherworldly serpentine look to the temples is just iconic in D&D. It's classic in D&D. You you expect to see when you walk into an ancient temple, snake statues built out of the wall or are, are absolute... Absolutely beautifully put together relief of snakes eating things. You've
1: been to Disneyland? Uh, several times, yeah. Yeah, okay, me too. The Indiana Jones ride is just exactly what I imagined. Does it UNT. still exist? Because it's been a it's been a bit since I've been there. I assume it still exists. I mean, no. Anyway, if they've got sure if they it got does. it's a wonderful lifer. It's a Small World? Yeah, that's the one. It's a Wonderful Life? That's a fuck of a, of a ride. I wouldn't like that. Okay, so everybody start off on the bridge. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, oh, God. Wow, this got oh, dark God. quickly, didn't it? <laughs> All right, at the very end, everybody <laughs> ring a bell. Oh. Like, yikes.
0: Okay. So, um, the UNT stayed in their strongholds, what was left of their society, for thousands of years after losing their power. But they were not idle. Don't think that they were they have always waited and planned and plotted to take over the uh, surrounding societies and at, but the surrounding nations grew in power that made the T have to stra- uh, have to use strategy and precision rather than all out warfare to attain their goals they became experts in espionage because of this and political infiltration to weaken the surrounding empires enough to be no challenge to a T assault they also know that where they may never attain the same level of rulership directly over humans as they did, once did, the control and corruption of enemy rulers is is just as good a fate. And the uh, U.N.T. will blackmail, manipulate, often using drugs and magic. Like, U.N.T. will be the ones that like, okay, well, if I addict your son to the heroin, you'll
1: do what I they're, want you to do. A worm tongue. Yeah, they're worm Wormtongue.
0: Yeah, they are, I mean, slimy. Um, but they'll do all that, including bribe. To, to achieve their goals, right? Now, let's talk about their culture now that we got a little bit of grasp of where their history came from. Emotions are now foreign in Yiwanti culture. They have worked so hard to squash that side of their humanity and they are now past it to the point where if you show emotion, you're exploitable to a Yiwanti.
1: Okay. All right. Hold on. I've I've got I've got an issue with this. I think that that's generally mostly true that you're not going to see them writing sonnets and love poems, yeah. or crying in the streets. But their emotions like jealousy and and avarice and
0: uh, I mean, yeah, they're not quite lizard folk.
1: No, they're not, and that's my thing. Lizard folk are lizard brained. They're yeah. freaking weird. And I mean, on the on the ultimate other side of things, the kuato who are nothing but just roiling balls of emotion all of the time, <laughs> usually fear, but. Uh, <laughs> Fuck! I love Kota. and reverence, um, but uh, but with the UNT, there they will still feel, but they will do it behind closed doors, and they will be very private about it. And it's only going to be the negative emotions. It will I, they will have a seething rage deep in their heart for their nemesis. Yeah, where lizard folk will not. Well, a, a UNT I feel is
0: where their their status is never good enough to them. They they are ambitious to a fault. So I think you're right. If they've achieved one of their goals and are sitting in victory... Oh, they've got pride and like... Right, yeah, but they sit in victory. They're going, okay, here's next. Right, they're instantly scheming to the next step up to
1: progress. So as much as like they don't have emotions, I don't think they have what we consider to be humanity, the humane emotions. Yeah. They still feel emotions, it's just... Just not the good ones. But they're also incredibly pragmatic.
0: And you see that with a lot of uh, these emotionless um, races like the lizard folk. This, this pragmatism comes in and to the point where Yuan-Ti uh, have a nearly unshakable will to themselves. Like once they set their eyes on a goal, that's they're going to get that and achieve that goal unless they are otherwise influenced by magic, right? Like they are just laser lock focused on obtaining more and more power which also includes their worship. yuan not uh, now do not fanatically worship their gods with their pragmatism, but see their gifted powers as stepping stones to eventually replace and consume their gods. Yeah. Right? Um, they have really no morality, like we mentioned. Yuan-Ti will do absolutely anything to gain in power or ascension, and they will also use this pragmatism to influence others, often by... Uh, often starting by promising riches or power to those who are wanting in those fields. Right? Now, if you were to be one of those people and you wanted to trust UNT, this would be a fatal mistake as UNT have no desire to lift anybody up in station but themselves. And any allegiance is a necessary part in that end goal to UNT. The second that allegiance lacks purpose, it is shunned, destroyed, and consumed. Which also means that honor doesn't exist in a UNT society. Ambush, poison, and numbers are used whenever possible to guarantee a fight. DMs, please be careful with this, because yeah, you'll over prep and murder your party. Oh yeah, and if you wanted to, well, it, it's a full city state. It's got hundreds of UNT. You've just killed your level
1: eighteen party. They may be relatively low level, but the action economy is in your action favor. action economy is going to be in your favor. Now Th- that's one of the things that I run into a lot, which doesn't make any sense in, in lore versus mechanics, is they'll rely on numbers when they fight. We saw this with the lizard folk as well, and I'm like, yeah, but but then they kill your your people, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, how much of D and D is is supposed to be sneaking behind the army? Your players should be able to outthink the enemy because the enemy is going to have superior numbers at all time. And that's something that I feel like most players don't want to do. They want to be Thor and just walk in, mm. right? And they want to smash shit up, right? That's Brad and Dave right there. Fuck, if I right? have to DM one more character of Brad's that has lightning damage focus of some way, shape, or form. Yeah, because he wants everyone to look at me and my giant hammer that I'm wielding, right? The you, hammer's you, his penis.
0: Do you think it's overcompensating? I mean, how he plays his characters, it might be undercompensating. Yikes. Anyways, so as you see with this, I we did mention that... There are these steps to their, uh, to their culture, and they will scheme and plot to get increase in rank. There are legit physical forms to their rank, but don't think that all malisons are the same and all abominations are the same. No, they're not. No, there is a gradient of sneakiness to it all. I'm just gonna make words up left, right, and center in this Apparently, episode. Apparently, Jesus damn. So you will have purebloods that just have slitted eyes, but in all other ways are human, right? You'll also have Abominations that have six arms, four arms, three arms. Like, they're all over the place. So let's real quick go over what their structure is like in their culture.
1: Yeah, let's hit in the broad strokes because yeah. we're going to get into it a little later in this episode. Of course. So uh,
0: their top cast are the Abominations. Um, your Malisons are going to be your middle uh, cast and your Purebloods are your base. Anath- uh, Anathema are rare and are above... Um, even abominations. While
1: everything else below are brood guards or slaves. So we we have seen this a few times with the idea of the flind and the tanneruk and um, the even the the warlord for the hobgoblins and stuff. Yeah, the idea of this supreme being that sometimes takes over the entire uh, like horde that you have. The anathema is like that as well, and we're going to cover them in detail next week. Yeah. But expect that most UNT societies do not have them and, strangely, do not want them. No. uh,
0: A lot of the abominations will actively keep an anathema out if they could do it covertly.
1: Well, and they're trying to get it themselves. Yes. So they don't want anyone else to do it. But nobody wants an anathema because you are going to be uh, pretty much subjugated to its oh, yeah. will forever because those fuckers don't age. No, they don't. So that that's another cool thing about them. Like I say, next week we'll get into that. So assume though for the our, you know, purposes today, abominations are going to be the top cast.
0: Yeah. Um Below them are Malisons, and Malisons are where you're going to find the most... Body horror? Body horror and variation in in the snakiness of the yuan Yeah,
1: there are five different types, but even that can get really specific. And Yeah. Below that are your
0: purebloods. They are your playable race. So purebloods are the most human of the yuan Um They are often the ones that are going to be out inside of... Uh, External society out from their little, you know, clutches of sanctuary in these temples and city states and ruins. Um, that is the reason why a lot of your pure bloods, that is the playable race we have for you on T. Yeah. Right. Um, next below are Brute Guard, which may have started as humans, but they are the ones who have um, been tortured and uh, force fed an elixir to become these weird horror snake body horror things that are completely and hundred percent zero will subservient to any you want to. yeah yeah and below them are slaves which to be completely honest are there mostly for food and sacrificial reasons
1: yeah i mean they'll do the manual labor and shit too but it's only a matter of time right right um and i do want to make a point that all the slaves aren't just
0: humans any intelligent humanoid or beast can have that role
1: Um, Undead and conjured or created minions Are also present in that The other interesting thing is that there are cults And cultists And we'll talk about this in depth next week as Mm -hmm. well Some humans, specifically human slaves Who worship the gods During the, like, they they get converted During their slavery Can become cultists And will be released But you, like, they torture you If you are a human, they torture you Either to eat you or to convert you Yeah.
0: Um, Now, if you are a slave who fails your uh, job, your goal, whatever your task is, you are either murdered as a sacrifice or turned into a brood guard because it removes all your will. Right. Yeah. Now, moving on to what we often see with UNT society is there's this bent towards a hyper sexualized culture in a way. You do this every time that there's a snake thing. This is the Christian Dan. Where uh, no, I'm, uh, there's there's legit lore based around it. That's why I'm bringing it up.
1: You now. did this with the the Merilith um, as well, and there's nothing in Fifth Ed. When we were talking about Merilith, I don't know, twenty episodes ago, you're like, oh, they're hypersexual. I'm like, they're super not. They got a bikini top because it's a fantasy game, and of course they do, right? Uh, uh, hashtag patriarchy. <laughs> Jesus. But anyway, no. But the idea is that. Um, I, it, they're not prolific. They're not big breeders, right? Well, no. I mean, you can see
0: that they aren't because their society has been kept in, you know, a certain level for thousands of years. But I don't right? even think so they've they're got, not growing beyond that. But they're not lustful. Uh, they they recognize that having a large brood brings more power. Right, they do understand that, and because of that, you will see there is a lot of interbreeding amongst them. And even though that there is this large uh, physical divergence between these steps in their society, between malisons and abominations and stuff, they can still interbreed with each other and often do. The females will lay the eggs in clutches in a large open hatchery, which means I mean, yeah, there isn't much of a family unit, but they. Um, Will create these large masses so that they could have people that are more subservient to them.
1: I also love the fact that there there's no like humility and shit to these guys either. So no like whatsoever. like the pregnant females will will be like, I will not be available three weeks from now, for I am thick with young, and just like like really grossly phrased, like, <laughs> I am swollen with many children. The brood grows within, Yeah. right? And like just really gross phraseology, which is a lot of fun. The the one thing that uh is
0: present where if a malison say uh interbreeds with a abomination, um, the brood the clutch will ninety eight percent of the time take on the aspects of the weaker parent the malison in this
1: regard, right? Sure. That's
0: that step down. So many do try
1: to breed up, but it doesn't make any sense. That no, why would you try to breed up because it'll take on your own. Again, if they have more people subservient to them, like they're young,
0: that are a higher stage in life, then you can prove, uh, move your family, your little section, your little
1: group so, further out. So ahead. you're playing the lottery with it. You're trying to get the abomination, but it's we're talking recessive genes then. Yes. Yeah, right? very much so. There's no reason an abomination would breed down. Um, Other than to
0: generate number, I would say right like that that's that would be the main reason
1: i I can picture uh abominations even malison's breeding down with the with the pure bloods discovering that they've created another abomination and mm, stomping that egg to bits, I could see it yeah it's especially if there is
0: tension there or there like you could get Game of Thrones level political intrigue with u society yeah absolutely yeah, right? um now. The one thing I will note is we've mentioned purebloods a bunch of times. Purebloods are the most humanoid, so you think maybe they do breed with humans quite often. I mean, they can, but they view it as reprehensible and disgusting to do so. Yeah, man. Have you seen our dangly bits? They're not. They're not pretty. Yeah. The only way they'll do it is if it, in some way, shape, or form, increases their power or influence. This is like a UNT pureblood
1: seducing seducing a seducing king, a king yeah. right? That level of stuff. Do you, do you think that the pure blood with a human breeds true pure blood or breeds human? I think it, I think it breeds human from a story perspective. I would have it always breed pure blood. So you have the advisor who seduces the queen to have a, a Royal, the Prince who is now you want yeah, Oh yeah. I'm, I'm just from a, that. just from a story perspective that I would be more inclined to, to breed you Yeah.
0: Um, Moving on, UNT all follow a certain
1: code,
0: and and if you need help with running, r- not quite. If you need help with running your main, co- like your main UNT societies,
1: Python. Oh, yes, <laughs> <laughs> that was a nerd joke, people. Fuck, I hate you so much. Anyways, <laughs> um, this code follows
0: as suchly. All other lives are. Cheap. Like you are making up words. Follows as suchly. <laughs> you need to know better, man. No, I'm good. Uh, all humanoid life, including the cultists and slaves devoted to the yuan lack any real value. They're not above poisoning children to get at parents or transforming cr- a creature into a brood go- guard to remove resistance. Um. Uh, and a greater yuan T's life is worth more than a lesser one's. malison are, res- are expected to sacrifice themselves for an abomination if called to do so, and society follows this with zeal. But yuan T are so pragmatic, they don't risk undue lives unless it is their last uh, resort,
1: their I, last option. I would also say that a Amalusyn, if they could step up, would totally stab a, a oh, abomination. Oh, 100%, yeah.
0: Him. Now, this also tracks to the next step of their code, which is survival first. A Yuan-Ti is not afraid to retreat or flee if battle is even slightly not going in their direction. They are pragmatic enough to recognize the turn in battle's favor and will often leave early to set up an ambush or another combat to ensure their victory another day. Friends, Yuan-Ti are patient and you need to hit... They're not going to act rashly. They're not going to act reactionarily. If they don't... Jesus, fuck. If they don't have... I'm doing this just to piss you off now. Uh If they don't have the upper hand in combat... They're, they're done. They're gonna flee. Okay. The second they realize that, that's gonna be really frustrating for your party, really fun for your DM. Yeah. Retreat today, win tomorrow. Yeah. They will also go to a capture, not kill side of uh, things with their code. A slave or brood guard is of more value than a corpse in a hallway. They avoid, bu- they straight up avoid butchery and slaughter, preferring to enslave and have dominion over their foes. Because of the high cost of life for their rituals, Yuan T will gather slaves en masse and keep them alive in um and and keep them alive to build up to these rituals. These rituals, it's not just I killed this one person and become a higher step. No, we're talking hundreds of corpses involved.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. And right? and just to, to take it one step further with the capture not kill, this is really cool because you can ambush your party with overwhelming numbers and knock them all down to zero hit points, and then they wake up enslaved. Right, that is very much. When you are running the UNT, you have to think: What does this murder get me? It's not like goblins, which is going to be like, ah, fuck you, stab, right? Like, and it's it's not going to be, it's not get be, fucked, asshole. <laughs> exactly, it's not going to be gnolls who are in it for the slaughter, or orcs who are in it for the savagery, or yeah. even kobolds who are defending their land or whatnot, or, or lizard folk who are who are just hungry. hungry. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, what does this specific murder get me? Because if you are alive, I can use you. Anyways, they will then,
0: knowing that you're captured by them, take their time to try to convince you to join their side. Oh, yeah. Right? And they'll do that through either seduction, brainwash, torture, or just eyes you. Yep. Okay. Next, they depend on deceit. This is the next step of their code. Stealth, poison, patience, and manipulation are the main weapons of the yuan t they will, rather, they will rarely engage in full frontal combat, but instead will resort in ambush and waiting until night to attack their foes. They will wait until you are at your weakest to hit. Of right? course, yep. They are also immune to poison, so they can be a little bit less delicate when it comes to poisoning the meal of a king's great feast.
1: Okay, I have ranted more than once about poison and poison and poison conditions and poisons and the way that D&D bungles this pretty hard. However... For all intents and purposes, in this episode and the next one, when we say poison, we are talking about venom a lot of the time as well. So it's not just what you ingest; it's also what you get injected with, right? So it's it's poison and venom. So Adam, we do want to talk. I know sometimes
0: we bring this up at the end, but we're going to bring it up now. Role playing a UNT. If you are to role play a UNT in a party of adventurers, remember. Always, when you're playing a race that has this kind of history, this kind of flavor to them, you could end up being very confrontational and antagonistic to your fellow players.
1: Oh, then you don't understand UNT if you're doing that, because UNT will agree with you. Yes, but... I know, but they will also be
0: the ones to backstab your party. So rule one, as always, is don't be a dick. But after that, remember, they're emotionless, they're manipulative... And they believe themselves to be superior in
1: every way to humans. James played a UNT in an evil campaign of mine um, last year. We, We ran it for about a year. Yeah. And he was a UNT sorcerer who was out there to ascend to godhood. He was going to burn the world to the ground. And all the other evil characters are out for their own thing. He was building a cult. Well, we had a death cleric building a cult at the same time in the same party. And they were working together because it makes sense to get as many followers as possible. Because if we join forces, then yes, you, uh, she was uh, uh, worshipping Nerul. Oh, cool. Right? Which is the, one of the gods of death. Yeah, it's a
0: rotting skull with a yeah.
1: sickle in the uh, it's holy symbol. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and he teamed right up, even though his god was Dendar. And so he's like, yep, we're, we're, we're going to do this. This is going to be fantastic. I'm on your side. And the plan was, when we hit level 20... I'm going to murder her and take over the cult. And that track. is such a yuan thing to do. There's a reason to move forward with the party. Yeah. I did want to bring up
0: one little quote that is in Volos when it regards this attitude. yuan feel the same way as humans, as humans feel about chickens. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right? Wrap your head around that one for a minute. So there are only three types of creature to a yuan because of this. There is threat, meat... And other Yuan T. Most Yuan T see it as below themselves to talk to meat. And depending on the level of Yuan T, slaves are expected to understand and interpret the moods of their masters so the Yuan need not speak commands to them. The slaves are expected to um, anticipate their master's desires and act on them before the master puts in the effort to call it to uh be done
1: but this is not from like i feel like people are going to have a general impulse to have that be out of a hedonistic or a laziness yeah but that's not what this is this is purely arrogance yes yeah now you want to know who my favorite UNT from pop culture is who jafar oh yes
0: 100 oh very much yes that 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 fills a bunch of like check marks. He one hundred percent is a UNT pure blood.
1: Yeah, uh, Littlefinger is another one.
0: Yeah, yeah, and we mentioned Green Wormtongue Worm Tongue earlier as well. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, pure bloods, which is going to be your playable race, so you're going to be role playing as them, um, are trained to interact with outside civilizations, though. So this usually involves practice hiding their superiority complex. So they have practice. They know that they're better, but they're not going to show it to you because they know that would offend other people and that's going to ruin their plans if they're called out. Um, They will seduce and they're taught seduction and manipulation techniques as well as taking the orders of a king and how to do that with grace.
1: I like that they're going to have malicious compliance. Yeah. in, In a big way. Oh, you said that we should take care of them. I didn't know that didn't mean drowning them in the river. That's taking care of them. Yeah. Right. Um, so the other thing about it is you said seduction. Remember, that doesn't mean sexuality. Yeah. Seduction just means, oh, you want something? I can help you get it. Right. I will ingratiate myself to give you what you want. And that doesn't necessarily mean lust and sex. This is Dungeons and Dragons. It does mean loot and magic know this. Right. <laughs> I will help you get experience. <laughs> so, so finally we're going to
0: talk about Yuan-ti names. They're often generational and passed down from the earliest Yuan-ti empire although the sibilance is often added and exaggerated to better suit their physicality or ability. So all of their names are going to have these long s's, they're going to have these um very snake-like like they're they every name has some parcel tongue to it for your Harry Puddler. Fan. Harry So you'll you'll see a lot of their names are gonna come from that uh history there. Um you'll have names like Hitoti and Metsili and like they, they almost sound snakey and Egyptian at the same time.
1: Yeah, as they should. There's a lot of Egyptian iconography that's being used. Very here. much so. So that is all we
0: have uh for today on New Not even close. We've got another two hours to go. Yes, but we're going to talk to our friends next, so before we do
1: that, Adam, I would like to have a commercial. Hello, podcast people. Podcast people? We're recording. Yes, but it makes them sound like pod... We're recording! You're recording. Fuck. Hello, podcast people. We've got a couple of things going on that you might not know about, and so we thought we'd cut away to a little reminder. First of all, we just want to point everyone to our YouTube channel again. We appreciate that
0: all of you listen on your respective favorite podcast apps, but the It's a Mimic YouTube page has all of our shows laid out in playlists. That means you can listen to our Dragon episodes back-to-back, or dig through the Campaign Builder or Touring the Multiverse series without scrolling through the backlog or having to use a search function.
1: New episodes get uploaded within a week of airing on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever, but the whole backlog is up there. Even the episodes we are embarrassed about. Yeah, fuck. Those early cold opens were sloppy. Yeah. And delicious.
0: The other thing we want to hey, mention... Dan, it,
1: what? You, you know what else is
0: sloppy but delicious? Whatever you're going to say next is just going to get cut, so... Well, uh, the other thing we want to mention is our sneaky little store that lives an unassuming little life on our website.
1: There are stickers, magnets, phone cases, notebooks... Cups, water bottles, coffee mugs, and travel wait, wait, mugs. Wait, wait, I could
0: have a mug? I'm tired of your ugly mug already, man. I want a mug. We even have masks in a variety of sizes because we're socially conscious people. The current designs are for the It's a Mimic mic and the Deep Dark Irradiance logo, but we'll be updating the store as time goes on.
1: How big are the mugs? I
0: don't know. There's a standard one and a
1: tall one. And a travel mug too. Jesus, I need to look at this website more often.
0: So please take a second to check out what we have to offer. We really appreciate the donations we've received through the website, but we want to make sure that you guys have the option of getting something for your hard-earned money. Every little bit helps keep the lights on and the side projects rolling, and we love you for your support. So thank you to everyone out there who visits www.itsamimic.com and checks out our online store there. (laughs) There's even a little pin with the logo on it. And don't forget to check out the YouTube channel for perusing the older episodes. Now... Without any further delay, let's head back to the show. Jesus, are three different kinds of stickers, Dan. We are capitalist whores. Will you please take these damn commercials seriously? No. Welcome back. So, Adam, with a society of incredibly selfish people, what does a neutral evil society
1: look like to you? It's interesting because, again, we hit cults. And every time that we run into a cult, I always say, that's lawful evil. Uh They're following the rules for a basic objective, especially the UNT, where that basic objective is
0: following very specific established rituals for one person
1: to ascend to a next step. This, I think, the reason that these guys are neutral evil is because they will break law and order in order to get what they want. Yes, so they will follow the rules. Because they choose to, and then they will break them when they need to or want to. Yeah. And um, it is pure evil. I think, like, you don't get, you don't get more, like, ultimate evil than, I'm going to sacrifice 100 people and eat half of them. Uh, I mean, yeah. Right? So, that's why we're... Neutral evil is really true evil in a lot of ways, right? This yeah, was- I, I remember
0: back in the day where lawful evil was the most evil because it's conniving and it's, it's very intentionally
1: evil. Nah, man. No, I mean, in 5th edition, neutral evil takes that. Yeah, the just idea, like
0: neutral good is the most good in my mind.
1: Yes, the, these are the pinnacles. The way that neutral or lawful neutral is the most lawful. Right? Yeah, yeah. So this is as evil as it's going to be. They're not reveling in the destruction and the, the torture and the fear. They're the way all a means are. to an ends. Yeah. And that end is literally to destroy the world. That is their end goal. Oh yes, yeah. Which I'm going to get into that with the gods next episode. (laughs) All right, but that's the game plan. That's the end goal here. Yeah,
0: complete dominion and destruction. Yeah. Um, It also seems that every single creature with scales in D and D speaks Draconic. Why? What do you feel about this, Adam?
1: I don't like it. I absolutely hate it. There's nothing in it about them being with like talking with dragons. What the fuck is that? Is Draconic just snake speak?
0: is that what we're trying to say like it's just I hate speak? this
1: do its own thing have a UNT
0: language and just fucking move on. Yeah, I'm 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 with you on that one. Like the the this reliance I I've said and will say that dragons in D&D 5e are disappointing monsters. By the stat block. By, by the stat block. By the
1: lore they're fine, but
0: Yeah. to really pull a lot of attention to them with stuff like this feels weird to me. It I get it. I mean, the second noun in the freaking title of this game is dragon so we should
1: highlight them but if we're going to highlight them let's put a little bit more effort into their stat blocks please it's very telling that every time that you get a named dragon in D, every single time they have an additional ability yep that means that the basic stat block for dragons is lacking It almost feels like the basic stat block for dragons is a template that they're expecting you to build off of. Yeah, all the blue ones can do this, now add lightning shit, right? But there's nothing in the monster manual that says that, or any book that says to do that, so.
0: But we see, one of the
1: reasons why we do a lot of these breakdowns and do a lot of these stat block
0: coverages is to see the intention behind the rules, right? We, We like to see where their pattern is, what the design choices were, and this feels like one of those design choices where... Dragons are supposed to be your big bad evil guys, guys. So we're going to give you a lot of things that point toward them, but don't just use the main stat blocks, go beyond it, right? And having all scaly kind, being able to speak Draconic is just one of those things. Now, the only feature that also runs true through all of the type of one t is the fact that they are immune to both poison damage and the poison condition. We mentioned this earlier. How would you use this creatively, Adam?
1: I, I don't feel the need to because poison is so underutilized yeah. from the player standpoint in fifth edition that this is look people sometimes like to build a poisoner type like archetype character yeah and like for rogues specifically they like to do that and that's all well and good warn them not to do that for this campaign because there's just no fucking point yeah don't pull a fast one over your players on this one because it's I see. I, you see, there really,
0: in my mind, there are two societies that are so heavily focused on poisoning and this underhanded, conniving... You on tea. Drow and Uantique. Drow and tea, yeah. right? But
1: also... Drow aren't immune to poison. No, uh, some of them are. Well, okay. But uh, additionally, there's a lot of devils and demons and fiends and hags and there's a lot of stuff. Poison... Is the most common resistance and immunity that exists besides the... Slashing, piercing, yeah. bludgeoning versus non-magical items. Yeah. So that's the most common. And then it's poison and then it's fire. But our guys tend to rely on fire. Fireball, obviously. Well, fire and fireball, is
0: also but- the most present uh, element in spells.
1: Right. But poison isn't. Yeah. Right. Well, there's is what? Po- poison spray and then like a couple of other s- stinky clouds. Yeah. Right. But like... <laughs> i'm gonna rename it <laughs> stinky clouds just a bunch of farts um what i'm gonna call this downwind from dan um you're welcome the man you guys don't know what it's like being trapped in a fucking room with him week in and week out anyway so you also don't know how fucking my cleaning schedule goes after adam leaves
0: i gotta wipe down every surface to remove the stink
1: i just made a stink joke about you dan i know it goes two ways adam That doesn't make any sense. Your stench overpowers mine by a fucking sight. Are you sure about that? Oh, yeah. You are nose blind to your own. Speaking about being nose blind, quick little divergence. My wife made baby corn
0: the other day for the family because my kids, when we get Chinese food, they love eating baby corn. Sure. Sure. It stank up the house so bad. Baby
1: corn stinks. Oh,
0: buddy. Shannon and I did not know this, but it smelled like three-day-old ball sweat. Like, it was just oh, the worst... And it permeated a... everywhere. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. No, no, no. My big... Look, your stank is because you get home right after work. From yeah. A physical job. And then we sit in this closed room, and I die a little. And I'm not allowed to put on a fan because y'all hear it. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. Anyway, so... I forget what I was saying. Oh, poison damage. <laughs> um, when, when it comes... To- when it comes to poison damage and the poisoned condition, uh, welcome to It's a Mimic where we go off on tangents. Um, the simple fact of the matter is, it's a non starter. It doesn't matter no, to me no. because the players will have learned by now not to rely on this shit. And when they use their Cantra Poison Spray twice and realize, oh, it's never going to work on UNT, they will just never do it again. Mm-hmm. So you've done it against Pure Bloods and Brood Guards and, and cultists at this point. You, you're not. You're not doing this to the Malisons. You're not doing it to the Abominations. You're not doing it to any of the weird Volos versions of them. Like, you're just not. Yeah. So why even fucking bother with this? Uh, It's, of course they would have it. I would be annoyed if they didn't have this immune to poison. But it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like, ultimately, this does not affect my game. So, Adam,
0: we did want to talk about some physical variations when it comes to U1T.
1: Yeah, they got this really cool chart in Volos. Or it's a series of uh, random tables, actually. In order to keep the different UNT um, separate from each other, easy to identify when you're describing them, because snake person only goes so far. Yeah, yeah. Um, We actually have a number of different tables, uh, including, uh, these are all random tables. There's a D20 table for, or sorry, the snake body type, which is thick, normal, and sleek. Oh,
0: okay. So, like, I mean, we're anaconda... Like, Python. A, like an asp? A, yeah, asp, and and uh, I guess the sleek is the asp?
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, like, you know, garden snakes are relatively sleek as opposed to these
0: big constrictors. We don't have a lot of snakes locally. There's, like, gardener snakes occasionally, and that's it. Yeah. Right? But, like, we don't live I'm in, cool with it. Oh, me too. I remember camping in, uh, we have an area here called the Okanagan that has some, like, deserty patches to it.
1: And also a freaking Ogopogo. And also Ogopogo.
0: But uh, we I was camping there once and heard the rattling of a rattlesnake and just was like,
1: okay, nope,
0: and walked away. Got the fuck out of town. It was just me behind a bush with a oh, fucking probably, maraca. Just, probably.
1: Um, and then, all right, so you also get a D20 table for the humanoid skin color, which is mostly browns. Just what kind of brown? Is it a greenish brown or a reddish brown or a brownish brown? Okay. Um, you get scale color as well. So there's skin color, but then there's scale color as well. And when you get into the pure bloods and uh, the Malisons, you're going to have some of both, right? Yeah, 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 for sure. So the scale color really covers absolutely the entire gamut, with the exception of your pinks and purples, right? But all of your natural colors appear on there, and that's a D100. Yeah, okay. Uh, for the scale pattern, you get mottled, random, reticulated, speckled, and striped
0: care to explain some of those what is a reticulated scale pattern I don't know man. I
1: you're making me look it up now you look it up oh that's the like diamond pattern well not exactly it's like the python it's it's like the, the camo splotches that you see yeah so it can be it can be diamond but it doesn't necessarily have to be <laughs> uh, my, so I looked up what a reticulated Python looks like And the first image is
0: a reticulated python. Cool. The second image is a snake handler noping the fuck out of being attacked
4: by a python.
1: (laughs) Um, The next one which is really fun is the UNT tongue color. And while you may think that this is a weird thing to add, when when you look at the purebloods specifically, they say in the lore, oh, you're going to have something uh, like your eyes may have the, the snake slits. Yeah. Or it could be the color of your tongue. So you actually get some options, like an orange, a blue, or a black tongue.
0: Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Is it forked?
1: Uh, it it could be. Cool. Uh, you get eye color, which runs the gamut yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah, um, Your snake head shape. This is, harkens back to like the cold open. It's like, is it King Cobra? Is it? Penis. Penis. Is it bulbous is the question. No, is it broad and rounded? <laughs> flattened? Hooded. That was your question in the cold open. Uh, <laughs> slender or triangular, like a, like the Python triangular. Oh right yeah, 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 um, yeah. And then you actually have uh, a bunch of different um, specific tables for the different kinds of UNT as well, which uh, the guys are going to get into. So
0: first up in those is Dave, who's going to be covering the pure blood from Eberron.
5: Hey guys. Uh, Dave here. I'm still hanging out in the jungles of Kibara. You know, through my experiences here, uh, I have came across a new kind of creature that I wanted to talk about, and that is the Yuan-Ti, and more specifically, purebloods. Now, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but the Yuan-Ti live in kind of like a a caste system, uh, and the Purebloods are kind of the lowest on the totem pole when it comes to this. They are also the kind of Yuan-Ti that more closely resemble humans. Uh, However, if you like really kind of get in and look at them, you're going to be able to tell the difference. There's always some little hint about who they really are and what they really are. Uh, Maybe it'll be... the like scaly patches or something they're hiding under their their clothing. Uh, Maybe they got funny eyes or, you know, sharp pointy teeth or something like that, right? Uh, They do often try to cover up their identity and pass as humans to infiltrate civilizations and, you know, cities and stuff. Maybe local governments, maybe small towns, maybe big towns. They are also known to kidnap people for interrogation uh, and sacrifice, so that's fun. But they are willing to trade with anyone who has something that they value, something that will further what they're about. So, like I said, the, the Yuan-Ti purebloods are the most abundant of the, the Yuan-Ti. Uh, because they can easily pass as a human, uh, their their job is really to act as the, the agents of the Yuan-Ti society and interact with everything that's going on around them, you know, the outside world. They are able to live in these other societies uh, and pass off as humans but they do this not just because it's fun but they do it in order to gain power uh, and influence in in the local government i guess you could call it they do like to surround themselves in luxury like i said they're trying to climb up a little bit and because they're able to pass as the humans this is relatively easy for them however when they do get called home uh to report on what's going on and you know further the agenda of the UNT. Uh, they do become quite resentful as they have to kind of go back and, you know, live at the bottom of the caste system again. So, like I said before, the UNT can have this uh, humanoid. I mean, they are humanoids. They look like humans, but they can have a couple of snake-like traits. For instance, the pure blood. They have a, a, a table here for it's a D20 table, and it's for different pure blood characteristics. You can have fangs. You can have a forked tongue, scaly face, serpentine eyes. Uh, you know, there's uh, all sorts of different things you can do with them. Uh, there's not much to it, though, because again, these are supposed to be subtle features that could be easily missed from afar. Uh, now, the UNT Pureblood are, the, like I said, again the lowest on the UNT Totem Pole. Their AC represents that it's only an 11. They've got 9d8 hit points. That is 9d8 hit points, uh, and their speed's 30 feet. Their strength's a little above average, as is their Dex and Con. Uh, their intelligence, wisdom, and charisma is a little above that, but nothing is below an 11, and nothing is higher than a 14. So it's, they're, they're a little above average, but just about in every way, although they're not good at any one particular thing. Uh, their skills are a deception plus 6, perception plus 3, and a stealth of plus 3. They are immune to poison and the poisoned condition. Uh, They got darkvision out to 60 feet and a passive perception of 13 and they speak abyssal, common, and draconic. These guys are a CR1. They're not that difficult, although they do have a load of hit points for for level 1, or for a CR1. Uh, These guys also have innate spellcasting. Their spellcasting ability is charisma, so the save DC is 12 because, again, their charisma is their highest at a 14. Uh, And they can cast the following spells with no material components. They can cast animal friendship on snakes only at will. And three times per day they can cast Poison Spray or Suggestion. Now that's three times each, okay? So, uh, you know, they can do a a mix of that. They do have magic resistance, so they have advantage on saving throws against spells and other magical effects. When it comes to their actions, they do have a multi-attack, which is just two swings of their Scimitar, uh, which is a plus three to hit, and it does 1d6 plus one slashing damage. So, although they got a pile of hit points, they're not going to do... A heck of a lot of damage in the meantime. Um, they do also get a short bow for a ranged attack, which is just a plus three to hit, and it does 1d6 plus one damage, plus it does 2d6 poison damage. So that's how you're going to be able to deal a lot of damage with these guys. Is I like the idea of having them hanging out on rooftops or in trees or whatever and, and shooting arrows down to, to kind of throw off the party a little bit. Now, they do have uh, another ability that's kind of interesting called Shape-Changer, and this is only for the Purebloods. They can use an action to polymorph into a medium giant poisonous snake or into a large constrictor snake. Uh, and then they can go back to their true form again with the use of an action. Their statistics are the same in each form, except for the size change. Uh, Any equipment that they're wearing or carrying isn't transformed, uh, and it doesn't change form if it dies. So if it dies as a snake, it stays as a snake, which I don't think there's too many things that actually do that, so that's kind of neat. The purebloods also get a bite action, which is a melee weapon attack. It's a plus three to hit, uh, and it does 1d4 piercing, plus 1d6 poison, if the pure blood uses multi-attack, it can only use the bite attack once. So it would be bite, sword, right? That's how you get your multi-attack out of that. So I, these guys are neat. I think that um, a lot of the time I try to inject some some sort of uh, espionage or or secret spy stuff uh, into what I'm doing and just, it always keeps my guys guessing a little bit. Uh, and I think that the Yuan-T are perfect for this. Uh, they come in all different shapes and sizes and patterns and whatnot. And uh, and that can really be used to your advantage. Again, I like the idea of these guys sitting on rooftops, shooting arrows down, forcing your players to take cover. And everybody's done that. come into town, things are weird, talk to the mayor, the mayor seems off. This is what these guys are going to excel at. These are what they are for. They can come into your society, they can... Uh, turn it upside down. They can kind of take control of it from the inside. Uh, and then when everything is going to hell, and your higher, your players are a higher level, uh, there are more that you can pile into this to keep it interesting. It's not just the regular run of the mill. You know, half snake people because they're not really half snakes. At the, as the pure blood, they have snake-like qualities, but they're not like that. Uh, Anyways, at this point, I'm going to send it back to Adam and Dan. Uh, Thanks, guys. And if you guys want to get a hold of me, you can find me on the subreddit r slash itsamimic. Thanks, guys. I will catch you later.
0: Now, for those of you keeners who are following along with the Monster Manual, the idea of purebloods getting a shape-changer trait or bite abilities may seem totally out of left field, but those details are buried in the UNT lore... In Volos,
1: yeah. In this section, there is a whole list of special traits and abilities yeah. that you can add for even further variations beyond that. Uh, the physical traits that I I listed a few minutes ago. I kind of
0: wish that we had this kind of option with other um, monsters and playable races. Even like that might just be my Pathfinder sneaking in where I want there to be some more like some uh, optional racial traits and optional... for someone
1: who is so guilty of suffering from uh, analysis paralysis adding more oh I
0: I, I I look at my history playing games like Pathfinder as one of the reasons why I like having that stuff but also suffer the analysis paralysis
1: yeah so anyway one of the crazy interesting things about the shape changer uh, trait is that there's no cap on how many times a day that a pure blood can do this yikes Yep, and the fact that they don't revert to their true form upon death is kind of fun. You can drop a large dead snake in the middle of a missing person's case, and it's a great way to throw in a red herring into your mystery investigations plot. <laughs> oh, I like that. Like if if it gets out that you are a UNT pure blood and that you are oh no no I no I would I would Sherlock Holmes it right like your your party is called to the to find out some noble was murdered and whatnot, and the only evidence is a broken window and a large dead snake. I mean, the the fact that they can also cast suggestion adds to this. Yeah,
0: and so you- right? Because like they'll, they'll also manipulate the crowd a little bit to, to figure it out. or the, the individuals who are the hottest on their trails.
1: Yes, but you're missing the point. The murderer is there and dead, and your guys won't know it because they turned into a snake. Were killed by town guards. Oh
0: yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah.
1: And now your guys are on a uh, wild goose chase looking for the murderer, and this is how you uncover a bigger UNT plot. And they're like, "Well, we never did find the murderer, and we'll see which one of the PCs can Makes put a connection." Yeah. yeah. Okay. No, I like that. Back to this idea of suggestion, they
0: do get the ability to cast this three times a day as an inherent ability. It really ties together this whole idea that they are uh, manipulators of mass uh, amounts of people. Do you, Do you think there's any additional reason for this?
1: Yeah, they're about manipulators. It's it's in their lore. My problem is with the hypnosis that is given to snakes in general. This is a Jungle Book fucking yeah, detail. Yeah. And I don't like it, right? I like Ka having that ability in Jungle Book. Sure, fine. But snakes are the ones that get charmed. You are a snake charmer. Yeah, You are not charmed by a snake. I don't like this flavor in my snake shit, and it's all over U on t So I've accepted it as a UNT thing, but I hate it. For general snaky nonsense, I would rather see it in Naga than um, UNT. Sure, man, fuck, give it to flying snakes, give it to coattles, give it to all the other snaky shit that's yep. out there. But UNT being able to just—I mean, I know that they are infiltrating societies and whatnot, but the fact that they're going to use the shit on each other, left, right, and center, because they inherently get it. Even the pure bloods. When you get turned into a pureblood, you now have this magical ability to do this. Seems a little bullshit to me. I just don't like it, thematically. Yeah. Uh, The thing that actually stands out to me about the stat block is the inherent power of their shortbow. Okay. That's where I look at. I mean, besides the... uh, When they do get in a fight, it's it's weird to me. I don't like purebloods getting into a fight. They're going to run, right? Yeah. Granted, they don't get to use the multi-tack with it, but the fact that Purebloods take the time to obviously poison their arrows ahead of time just goes to show you that they're thinking about distance fighting over melee. Because there's no reason for the arrows to have poison on them, especially because in the DMG it says if you put poison on an arrow, I think it's a DMG, if you poison an arrow, it lasts an hour. Yeah. Which means they're doing this all of the time or they've got some sort of special thing to uh,
0: application process that
1: yeah or special poison or venom or whatever but there's no details anywhere in that and if they're doing that and your players pick up these special poison arrows now you've got to deal with that shit well this this goes to the fact that i mean when you see this plus
0: the deception and everything else that they got going to them they don't want a fair fight no right they're going to want to run away and shoot from range they don't want you a lesser chicken form yep. to hurt them or or mar them in any way shape or form
1: yeah, uh, look, these guys are spies. They're assassins. They're diplomats. They're not front row fighters. Yeah, I mean, they have slaves in brood guard to be the front line, right? Well, the brood guard isn't even front line. The brood guard hides back and protects the eggs. That is their sole. Ah, uh, yeah, uh, they guard the brood. Yeah, that is their
0: sole purpose. Speaking of Broodguard, Terry, who is a self described Slytherin, is covering UNT brood guard in the Green Dragon
6: Inn. Okay, thanks Adam and Dan for passing it back over to me over the Green Dragon Inn. I'm drinking Harp Lager today, uh, so today I'm covering the T Broodguard. Another good one for me. Now Broodguard is um, not not the prettiest of fantasy creatures for those that play D and D with me. They know that I like my uh, I like my fantasy gaming to be um, to be attractive. I don't like to be surrounded by ugly things. I I very much. Su- <laughs> subscribe to that whole beautiful elf type uh, type fantasy gaming. Yeah, I'm okay with that. Okay, but brood guards. Uh so these are humanoids uh that are transformed into very simple-minded, scaly, ugly, singular-minded, task-oriented creatures uh for the Yunti uh overlords. Now what happens is these humanoids, they're typically, you know, prisoners um or you know, people that have been captured for whatever reason by Yuan-Ti or enslaved uh, by them, Uh, they're made to take this magical brew that prevents them from fighting back, uh, incapacitates them um, so that they can be transformed into these creatures. And uh, and that magical brew itself is something that you can play with as a DM because if you think, you know, Yuan-Ti, they're typically out in the jungle and they're pyramids and, and doing all of their sacrifices and stuff you know there's going to be an element of herbalism and alchemy that comes with that and uh, that's that's an area that can be explored don't just gloss over that you know that can become part of your campaign it can even be a reward a magic item that's that uh, that becomes part of the game uh, for, for the players but anyway okay so that's what a brood guard is so let's take a look at uh, what it means to be a brood guard medium humanoid um, neutral evil and I agree with that you know i don't think these are, they're not chaotic evil because they they are there's singular in their in their mission right simple minded they have a single task that they're doing it might be guard the eggs it might be patrol this area it might be look out for this particular thing and attack this creature even though brute guards will typically attack anything that is not reptilian that's important to know important to note Uh, but they're they're certainly neutral in that they're not lawful evil for me because they don't have this big overarching code or agenda that they stick to it's it's very simple um, tasks that they are instructed to follow armor class they have natural armor 14 hit points 78 plus 14 that averages out of 45 they've got that standard speed of 30 feet looking at their stats here as you might imagine, intelligence is low, way, way below average. So is, so is charisma. Okay, their, their ability to in- interpret people's actions or, or communicate or understand people is going to be low. That's why their charisma is low. However, their wisdom, so their understanding of the world around them is above, slightly above that of an average human, slightly above what you or I would have. That's important to note. Because they may be, and I've said this about other creatures before, of academically low intelligence and problem solving, but their understanding of what is going on around them is not low. They, they understand what you are, that you are an enemy. They recognize what humans smell like. They, they understand what a group of people sounds like that's approaching. They, they would understand... Uh, if something was hostile, that is ha- slightly higher than, than, than an average human in the real world. Saving throws, we've got strength, dexterity, wisdom. Skills, perception, plus two for that. Damage immunities, poison, sure, yeah, makes sense. Condition immunities, poisoned. Senses, we have dark vision of 60 feet, because it's fifth edition, everything's got dark vision, to quote Adam. And, uh, and I agree with him. Passive perception of 12. Languages, abyssal, common, and draconic. There's no there's no statement here that says they only understand that. By the text, they can speak and understand abyssal, common, and draconic. Challenge rating of two. Let's look at their abilities here. Mental resistance, I like this. The Brute guards, the Brood Guard has advantage on saving throws against being charmed, and magic cannot paralyze it. I like it and I agree with it. There's there's no issues here for me with that. Um and, and, and I really don't think there should be. Somebody might have a case where they find that that's important, but I don't even think it's it's important enough to argue. Yeah, sure, um, can't be charmed, magic can't paralyze it. Reckless, this is an important ability for them. So at the start of its turn, the Brood Guard can gain advantage on all melee attack rolls it makes during that turn, but attack rolls against it have advantage until the start of its next turn. Okay, so here's an idea, DMs. You need to capitalize on this. This UNT Brood Guard is there for a specific mission. It does not have to care for its own life like you or I have. It is not necessarily looking both ways before it crosses the street. What's more important to it is that it kills the thing that it thinks is a threat on the other side of the street. So you have to go into these combats and these encounter- encounters thinking like that. Do not think that they will think like you. Preservation of their own life is not important. It is the task that they've been given that's important. So naturally, they will take whatever advantage they can get on attacking and killing the thing in front of it, even if consequently, it maybe creates a disadvantage for them in a different way that they may not consider because they're single-minded and thinking about the task ahead it's important I think it's important it shouldn't be overlooked so for actions they have a multi attack the brute god makes three attacks one with its bite and two with its claws this is going this is gonna go hand in hand with the reckless ability and bite attack it's 1d8 plus two piercing damage claw attack it's 1d6 plus two slashing damage okay sure okay so here's how I think that these things need to be played out their behavior yes is going to be somewhat predictable providing that you've studied it. Okay, if you've never come across these things before, just because you know what the, the they are from played D D previously, you know, play the game. Don't be met don't be meta with this. But the way that they should be played is that they are going to understand the threats around them. Okay? And they're going to be reckless in attacking and putting down what they believe is the biggest threat to what their mission is, whether it's protecting eggs, uh, keeping a certain area safe, whatever. Whatever they identify in front of them, you have your five players, they go that one from their understanding of the world is likely to cause the most damage i'm going to go after and kill that thing so if you have an encounter where you maybe have two brood guards and yuan t kind of and, and a single yuan maybe overlooking them this is where those brood guards are going to be going after what they think is the biggest threat they're gonna be on it like shit off a stick on this thing reckless three multi-attacks trying to put a single creature the biggest threat down immediately so what happens here is you may get your your spellcasters now are quickly going to be overwhelmed. The martial classes that are in the group are going to have to be very reactive, and they're going to have to protect those spellcasters. So their turn is going to be spent probably going into melee with these things, and then now the battle is taking place further away from the UNT or, or the or the enemy spellcaster, which is outside. So if you do well on initiative, even though they're a low challenge rating, you're as players you may be immediately on the back foot here you may be immediately on the back foot because they're going to play the game that they want the game to be played the way they want the game to be played which is three attacks from a multi-attack coupled with reckless on what they deem to be the biggest threat you're spending your whole turn being reacted to that eyes are not on the spellcaster which is further away and you've got to be conscious of this um you, you've got to be conscious of this because it can very quickly turn sour even though they don't seem like this should be a big enough threat. But that's the Auntie Brutguard. Okay, Lots of ways to use them very creatively depending on the environment that you put them in. If you put these these creatures in an enclosed space where it's difficult to move around them and capitalize on movement, things can go wrong quickly but it's going to make for a very exciting encounter. I'm looking forward to using them. Okay, that's it from me on the, on the Auntie broodguard. Back over, Adam and Dan. I'll chat to you guys soon. Find me on Instagram at Van City Terry and I'll talk to you later.
1: Okay, so again, we talked about Broodguard really briefly, but for those of you who don't have Volos, Broodguard are these hunchbacked looking scaly lizard creatures. They got large fangs protruding from their lower jaws, almost like tusks. They got thick scaly skin, large nasty claws, and they used to be human. So Terry mentions that these guys are
0: intensely hostile towards any non-reptilian creature, do you include the scaly kind that we've talked about a couple times, the dragonborns, the
1: kobolds, fairy dragons into this mix? No, no, absolutely not. I, it, it's going to be the most, uh, maybe dragonborn, but no, they're going to... Do they hesitate with dragonborn, but still go for it? The dragonborn will be the lowest priority. Okay, yeah. You know, if everybody's moving, to if the party's moving together all at, at once... They'll target the elf and the dwarf. Like, they they will hate the, the skinned creatures before the scaled creatures. Yes. But this, these are still not UNT. And the Broodguard, I think, would know that. Yeah, okay. That's fair. Um, also, considering that the Broodguards are created to be guardians of the eggs, uh, Terry is right. The reckless feature makes a lot of sense about how it throws caution to the wind to achieve its goals. Okay. But because of the above-average wisdom stat... I would guess that they could determine threats enough to be able to position themselves between the intruders and the largest number of eggs. Or prioritize escaping with a kidnapped egg, right, instead of standing and fighting to the death. Yeah. Right. Their priority is always the eggs. And as you said earlier, there are going to be some eggs that are of higher caste than others, and the brood guards would know that. Oh yeah, they'd be like, that one there
0: is an anathema egg in the making we're
1: grabbing that. well there's no no such thing
0: an abomination egg, right and we'll take that and go yeah right um also uh as terry said before these guys are made from captured humanoids but the flavor text really leans hard on the idea that they prefer to do this to humans specifically humans doing this though elevates the brood guard to like an alpha slave over the rest um Pure Bloods won't give a second thought to commanding these creatures to commit a suicidal action, but if there are other slaves around, the slaves are going to get to do that
1: action first. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. They'll like use up the others.
0: They they are like, uh, I don't know why we're, I mean, we mentioned Slytherin uh, earlier, so I'm in a very Harry Potter frame of mind, but they're like the house goblin or whatever it is. But house, The house elf. House one. elf, yeah. Fuck, Dan, watch the movies. So they're like a house elf, but the one with the sock. Right? Like, he's just that step above the rest.
1: I apologize to everyone. Just everyone for what just came out of Dan. The one with it. He's got... Is it not a sock? Is it like a glove or something? So, your entire fucking metaphor (laughs) is absolutely wrong. He is not better than the others by any means. Well, I mean, someone obviously liked him enough to give him a sock.
0: You have Monster. No one's given Monster a sock, whatever his name is. Monster? I don't even know what you're trying to say. What's the, what's the like grumpy one that they meet in the folding house?
1: Fuck. All right. <laughs> moving right along because I'm about to rage at you. Jesus, you fucking son of a... <laughs> Look, okay. As a DM, I love the Brood Guard. Okay? Because it's got some good body horror attached to it. Yep. Uh, but I, get, I fully expect... Uh, The details of how to make a brood guard to be just another hand-waved ritual that only exists in the flavor text when we came across it the first time. But you can imagine my surprise when I discovered that there's actually a breakdown for this. Hmm. So here's here's what it is. The subject is force-fed the brew, the elixir that you mentioned before. Yep. um, That uh, Terry also mentioned. And then they have to do a single DC-15 con save to stop the effects. On a success, they take 4d6 poison damage. On a success. On a success. I'd also like to mention that DC 15 con save is not small. No, and you're probably tier one and tier two. People will fail this. Yes. On a failure, your character begins to change. You'll notice there are no other saves. It's the one. One d6 plus six days later, so up to 12 days the transformation is complete and they cannot be cured short of a wish spell.
0: How would you cure it in the interim as a DM? Is there a way? You get the one save, but if you fail that, you have 1d6 plus 6 days before you turn into...
1: No, one. it is happening.
0: Yeah, it's happening. So the second they fail that save, only a wish spell works? Oh, no. Or is there no, like no, an once,
1: intermediate? Once it's complete... Okay, so hold on. Anytime before that, oh, okay, it says okay. right in the rules... Um, Less restoration or remove curse or other magics like that mm-hmm. can reverse the process and cure the subject. Cool. I'm going to say that you need less restoration or remove curse at a at a low level for the first few days. When you get into the later stages of it, you, have, you need greater restoration or remove curse, but you need a sixth level spell slot to do it. Yeah. Something like that, right? And I'm going to slowly transform that player character or that NPC as we go.
0: Basically... You're not letting your paladin walk over and expend five points of his lay on
1: hands to get rid of this thing. He's got an hour to do it. And I think the UNT are smart enough to know that would keep the brood guard separate for a couple hours. Okay, cool. I like that.
0: Now, I don't expect that you're going to run into any fewer than a handful of these at a time. No. Right? I mean, they're CR2, so they're not anything to really laugh at. But I think they're going to move in packs the action economy is going to work against your party, as we've said with with most of the UNT. They err towards uh, the action economy being in their favor, and it's going to be really evident with the amount of brood guard they have. Yes, right. So moving on, we are going to see Brad covering the UNT abomination from the yawning portal.
3: Thanks Adam and Dan. Well, I want to talk to you today about Yuan-Ti, specifically the abominations of the Yuan-Ti. These are some fascinating creatures, and I'll try not to go too long with them, but I could talk about these for quite a while. So Yuan-Ti abominations are pretty near the pinnacle of yuan civilization. This is what Yuan-Ti aspire to be, and this is really the closest that they get to their gods, to their masters. Um, there's only one step above UNT abominations, and it's basically a bigger, badder yuan abomination. But for your average yuan this is the pinnacle. This is what you strive for. yuan abominations are large monstrosities. Uh, they're shape changers. They are yuan Um, and they are, to describe them, they're basically, imagine the body of a snake with the upper torso of a humanoid but still covered in snake scales with a snake head. These things are like the snake version of a centaur if you will, but rather than having flesh anywhere, there is no flesh whatsoever. It is snake tail into a humanoid torso but it's still snake-like with arms and then with a snake-like head. They tend to carry a scimitar and a longbow uh, and they're very capable of doing both they often have those strapped to their upper torso as obviously it would be very difficult to put a belt around a uh, snake so things generally tend to keep things strapped to the upper torso these things move fairly quickly. Um, they're snakes, they move faster than your humans will move, they're gonna move 40 feet. They've got 127 hit points, or 15d10 plus 45 if you choose to do so. Uh, they don't wear any armor, but they have a natural AC of 15. Uh, they are skilled in both perception and stealth, immune to poison, uh, have dark vision just like everything and they uh, speak abyssal common and draconic these things have a cr of seven they're not pushovers um and it's not uncommon to have a few of these in the same space i mean these things aren't super common they're not the bulk of your unt army but they're not so rare that you it's impossible to see a few of them in one place uh, as far as stats go UNT Abominations have an incredibly high strength, a good dex, a good con, good int, good wisdom, and really high charisma. These things are going to be way higher than your average human in every single aspect. There's not a single stat that they have lower than, let's say, a plus three in. So these things are powerful. Um... While I describe them as being snake-like with a torso, they actually do have the ability called Shape Changer, and they can use their action to polymorph into a large snake. So different from some of the others, many of UNT can transform into a snake. Their specifically is a large snake, and it can transform back to its regular form. Um, It doesn't state specifically, but I believe it would take an action to do so. Um, As a fun fact, as it changes forms, it says any equipment that it's wearing or carrying is not transformed. However, I think I can imagine transforming into a snake, unless it is somehow strapped to the body in a way where it won't be knocked loose, they would, I would rule it that if they had anything in their hands as they transformed, they would be dropped and they would not be able to pick it up until they turned back into their Abomination form. Uh, Abominations do come with innate spellcasting, which can only be done when they're in the Abomination form. Obviously when they are in their Snake form, they cannot cast these spells. At will, they can cast Animal Friendship on Snakes and Snakes Only. Three times a day they can cast Suggestion, and once a day they can cause Fear. That said, As a party member, if I saw this as a player, I would probably have a little bit of fear in me for sure. Uh, They come with magic resistance, so they have advantage on any saving throws against spells and other magical effects. Uh, They are able to make a multi-attack in their Abomination form, which means that they get two ranged attacks or three melee attacks. Note that is different, so it's not just two attacks. It's two ranged or three melee, but it can use, we'll go into a couple more of them, but it has a bite and a constrict attack, and each of those it can use only once per turn. So don't try and make, you know, three melee attacks using bite and constrict. You can do one of each of those, and then a scimitar attack if you wish, or you could do two longbow uh, attacks. So their bite attack is a melee attack with plus seven to hit, and it's going to do 1d6 plus four piercing damage plus ten poison damage. So... It is quite a formidable attack. You'll probably want to be using this. Uh, Constrict is its other uh, natural ability. It's a melee weapon attack as well with plus 7 to hit, 10 foot reach, and it does 2d6 plus 4 bludgeoning damage. The target will be grappled with an escape, so there's no actual save on the Constrict itself. However, on your turn, you will then be able to make a escape. Uh, action, which is a DC 14 check. And until the grapple ends, you will be considered restrained. So that means that any attacks, melee attacks, will have advantage against you. You will have disadvantage on any of your attacks. So. Be wary. Uh, Do not let these things constrict you because you're going to have a really bad time. Oh, you also have Disadvantage on Dexterity Saving Throws. So be wary of being caught in an Abominations Constrict. Like I said, they carry two weapons. They carry a Scimitar and a Longbow. So with the Scimitar, again, plus 7 to hit. And it's going to do 2, d 6, plus 4 slashing damage. So likely, if you're using these optimally, you're only going to be making one attack with the Scimitar. You'll probably make one Bite and one Constrict attack. As the Scimitar is your lowest damaging uh, attack, but that said, it's still going to do 2d6 plus 4 slashing damage uh, with a plus 7 hit, so they're fairly formidable with the scimitar. They're also armed with a longbow, allowing them to make a ranged weapon attack for plus 6 with a range of up to 150 feet or 600 with disadvantage and they do 2d8 plus 3 piercing damage plus 10 poison damage so watch out for the poison damage they do poison the tips of their arrows these things are vicious they also get a couple extra uh, special maneuvers that they're able to use. You'll find these in Volos. Uh, they have the trait called Acid Slime. These ones are optional. Um, so not necessarily all UNT will have it, but or Abominations will have it, but that said you're probably gonna want to use these as a, a Dungeon Master. So, first ability they have is called Polymorph into Snake. It has a recharge time of six rounds, but they can target a creature and they have to succeed on a Wisdom saving throw or they will be polymorphed into a tiny poisonous snake. So similar, it's exactly like the polymorph attack, but they can only transform you into a tiny poisonous snake. And the uh, DC will be the same as their other uh, spell casting abilities. They also have one more ability, which is really interesting. Two more abilities, sorry. Uh, they have snake antipathy. So basically, they it's a fear, effectively. And what happens is, once every six turns, they can... Target a creature within 60 feet. You have to succeed on Wisdom saving throw, or else you are effectively afraid of these things. You feel this urge to run from them. Uh, you cannot move towards them. You have to move away from them, and you will be frightened as long as you can see it. So, if you can move around a corner and get out of sight, you won't be affected. But as long as you can see them, you will suffer from the frightened condition. And the last ability that they can have is sticks to snakes. So that once every six turns again, they can transform a pile of sticks, arrows, or anything made of wood into a swarm of poisonous snakes and the Swarm acts under the command of the Yuan-Ti Abomination. That's a lot of abilities that these things pack. With a CR of 7, if played well, I think they can be even a little more dangerous than their CR lets on. These things are fantastic and I can't wait to get my hands on some of these and throw them at a party and see how. You would deal with them because they really are a formidable foe you're going to want to keep them at distance you're not going to want them le- to let them get this biter constrict attack on you but that said their longbow attacks are nothing to scoff at either and with the ability to change into snakes they're going to be able to hide in plain sight within a forest or a jungle um, they're going to be hard to detect they're naturally going to be have a pretty good idea of their surroundings and they're going to be able to get the jump on you these things are really powerful so I'd love to hear from you guys how you might use them, what you think of them, if you've ever come across one, and how you dealt with it, um, and whether they got the jump on you or whether you were actually able to get the jump on one. Uh, Like always, you can reach me at cluelessgamemaster on Instagram, or give me a shout out on the subreddit, and I'll try and answer any questions you have. Look forward to hearing you. Back to the guild hall, Dan and Adam.
1: Okay, we often see the creatures can't cast spells unless they're in their natural form. Mm. why do you think this is um is it the somatic component is that what it is you don't have fingers because you're a snake so
0: i think it's a mixture of the somatic the and the verbal
1: you can't move your tongue enough to or in the the or in the
0: way that you learned the spell right like if you're if you learn a spell as a druid and then you are a bear your tongue
1: just moves differently what if i take off my clothes and i'm a bear druid wrong type of bear now I can just do that somatic component a little bit better with a little flippity-floppity added to it, Dan.
0: I'm going to move on to other large-sized snakes. The Abomination is a large-sized snake, but I assume this is because... Well, it's
1: not a snake. It's a Yuan-T. Well, it's
0: a U on T. It's Snake guy. Um, now, I assume this is because the snake body that makes up its lower half is large. It doesn't specifically state anywhere, but I assume that these guys have regular human torsos on top of their snake forms. Um, for a large size creature that could stretch out and coil, do you think they'd make they take up a five foot by ten foot slot on a grid? Or a What do you mean like a horse? Like like a horse or a full ten by ten?
1: Uh like a like a Garistro. They're both yeah. like large size.
0: Uh, aren't Garistra huge.
1: You're right. Like um, an ogre. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. <sighs> um I don't know, honestly. Whenever I read, whenever I would do my my snake stuff before, um, were you? Yeah, you were there I when was I was there. Yeah, yeah. you had you had one that was like it was a ten by ten square, but but then it coiled out, and I was using pennies to like show where its body was as it's like snaked around, yeah. the map and whatnot. And although it was a ten by ten square, it could stretch out to be like seven or eight um, squares on the grid. Which is far larger than large, mm-hmm. but I just assumed that it was thin enough that it would still count by mass. Sure,
0: yeah, I, I wouldn't go any larger than four se- uh, segments.
1: Oh no, I see. I have no problem doing that if it, if it's thin. I'm. Th- I look at the idea that a horse is large and an ogre is large it doesn't make any sense to me. I so how they we've complained about this a few times on the on the podcast about how. Size categories
0: are How arbitrary. How size works is weird now, especially with no colossal or tiny.
1: Well, yeah. No, when you get to gargantuan or... No, there is tiny. There's not uh, diminutive. Not diminutive, yeah. When you get to gargantuan or tiny, it's just anything above gargantuan or below. Or really, anything above huge is gargantuan. It can be the size of a mountain or the size of a house. Yeah. doesn't matter. It's just gargantuan yeah. size. Which doesn't fucking help because there's no actual size descriptions. Yeah, in it, the, it could be a mote of light or a, you know, small cat. For diminutive. For tiny. There's no diminutive.
0: Well, uh, yeah, sorry, for tiny, yes.
1: Right, which is... Ah,
0: it frustrates the shit out of
1: me because... me too.
0: Clearly, I have trouble with it because of my 3.5 where they had those.
1: So, I look at it like it's overall weight and volume.
0: Yep, that tracks with me. I'm I'm with you on that one.
1: So, um, anyway, when it comes to the attacks of the Abomination, I just want to move into the stat block for a sec. I think it's clear that they want to constrict first. okay. Um, As it ties up one of their enemies, gives them advantage on future attacks against that enemy and whatnot, right? Because they get that constrict and the restrained. Next, of course, is going to be the bite attack because it does a total of 4d6 plus 4 damage as opposed to the scimitar, which does 2d6 plus 4.
0: And they're going to know that their bite is more powerful than their sword. Absolutely. Right, they're smart enough to realize that.
1: Um, It's always useful to look at what the options are available in the multi-attack to determine the order of attacks and the strategy of the creature in question. Because this is a high-intelligence creature, it does have some real tactics on the battlefield.
0: Yeah, this is your opportunity as a DM to really get granular with your tactics on the battlefield as well with your party.
1: This is going to be your big, bad, evil guy of your low-level campaign.
0: Yeah. yeah. Now, we also see that their additional traits and abilities that are listed in Volos really give us a little bit more variety and fun for our abominations that they could use on top of that. So you can kind of customize them a little bit. But yeah. I I think we should use those sparingly. Um, adding detail and nuance to different fights is cool. But if if you overdo it, it could be a little repetitive.
1: You're talking about the variants. The yeah. variants, yeah. Look, remember, the save on the polymorph variant is going to be the same as the save for spellcasting, which is a DC 15. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say that specifically anywhere. But that's what it is. It is technically just more spell casting.
0: Yeah. Also, it's worth pointing out that when Brad says the pol- uh, that the polymorph, antipathy, and sticks to snakes actions all go off every six rounds, he's hitting you with an average of every six rounds. You actually have about a 17% chance of getting a recharge on any one
1: of these. Yeah, because you're rolling a d6, yeah. right? It's a recharge on s six. So Brad just likes to... Talking averages sometimes, yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, at face value, these guys—they look like your vicious brutes and your your nasty brawlers. But in reality, they are the schemers and masterminds of the UNT. They have the mental stats to back that. Yeah. Do not sit there and look at it really quickly when you look at the CR rating and say, "Oh, that guy's going to be the final boss. It's going to pound on them with their fists." No, they're still smarter than your characters. Yeah, we want Bane from the comics. Not, not Bane
0: from Batman but, Forever. No, Batman. And Robin. Batman. And Robin, not Bum. Exactly. Or or Bane from uh, Harley Quinn, which is amazing.
1: Yes, the 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 HBO show. Yeah, yeah. Oh, welcome,
4: welcome to hard. the Pit. Oh,
0: oh. I'm Pitt. <laughs>
1: What was that boy? He's Kermit the Frog. At the I don't end know.
0: There. Anyways, Megan, uh, speaking of Kermit the Frog, Megan is going to be covering the Malison from <laughs> Castle Ravenloft. Yikes.
2: All right. Hello, everyone. This is Megan here, of course, from Castle Ravenloft. Yes, I'm still here, and it's been quite some time. But I promise there's nothing to worry about. I have just been here kind of looping the same hallways for the last couple of hours. But um, I'm sure it'll be fine. If you hear weird noises, of course, that just comes with being in a creepy little castle. So apologies. So I actually wanted to take some time, of course, to break down and dive into the You Auntie, Malison, which to kind of get started, I feel like I have to give you guys some imagery. These guys are your half-humanoid, half-serpent kind of physicality. And if you're wondering, but Megan, what 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 half is what? Um, Don't worry, you actually get to choose. So I'll dive into that a little bit later. Uh, In society, these guys would be kind of considered your middle classmen. And then to add to that, they do have the ability to kind of carry magic as well. Uh, They are well-liked by their serpent gods. So you do sometimes see them as either worshippers, or you know, even they can be like um, warlock, depending on you know what alignment you want to go with with these guys. So weirdly enough, in fact, there is a cool little small variant in the books, which is really interesting to read about. It's just a, kind of like a little bit of blip, a little bit of a storyline, um, that there are three priests with names that I literally am having a hard time pronouncing.
1: Uh, sidebar, really quickly, the names of the priests are Erekiti, Kultha. And Nis. They're in the Tomb of Annihilation, which has a decent UNT presence. Significantly, yeah. And they get Eldritch Blast with two beams, a plus five to hit, and one D10 plus three force damage per beam. They also get Minor Illusion and Poison Spray, and all of that replaces their longbow attacks, because they are far sneakier. Oh yeah, for sure.
2: They do utilize the and Breakdown but they do just gain magical spells right away so like Eldritch Blast and things like that so I feel like these guys kind of have it all Um, very customizable for making PCs for making NPCs for making armies for making uh, towns for making anything that you want Um, very very creatively malleable which I think is really neat for anyone who's a DM or anyone who's trying to make it maybe a PC this might be one to kind of give yourself a good start on but let's get into some stats how about that? So these guys here, as I said, if you think of them as your middle classmen, you'll kind of understand that if you're going to be building these as an uh, NPC in your, in your games. They do only have a challenge rating of 3. So if you're going to be coming up against them, they're not overly powerful. They have an armor class of 12. I feel like that kind of goes with their snake skin. But if you were to put armor on these guys, of course, that would beat that out. Uh, they have a regular speed of 30. So kind of similar to any other regular humanoid which I think I would love to get you guys' opinion on whether or not you think that if the bottom half is a snake, if they should be able to slither a little bit faster. (laughs) That's just my thoughts. Uh, The Malsons, of course, have a strength of plus three, a dex of plus two, and a constitution of plus one. Um, so at first you would glance at this and be like, these are totally built to be very fighty. However, they also have a plus two of intelligence, a plus one of wisdom and a plus three of charisma. Because remember, like I'll get into it, but their spellcasting ability is charisma when they do end up having spells. But I just find it so interesting that like they're above average in everything. It's so crazy to me. But yeah, they do have um, higher skills than deception and stealth. So think Snake. They're going to be hiding in the trees and the bushes. They're going to be quite quiet when they slither around or move around. Um, They have damage immunities to poison. Again, like I've mentioned it maybe once or twice, but snakes, poison, it just makes sense Um, in my mind. I think maybe because of Pokemon, that might be my own problem. They do, of course, have dark vision of up to 60 feet and a passive perception of 11. So, again, why did Dragonborn not have dark vision, but the snake folk do. Anyways, I, I digress. And then, of course, for languages they have Abyssal, Common, and Draconic. So, very well-read. Um, very well-knowledgeable characters. So, but yeah, so these guys, they do have a couple of really neat abilities. They do have Shape Changer. So, as an action they can use Polymorph uh, to change into a medium-sized snake and then or back into its true form. And the statistics do tend to stay the same. Uh, and any equipment and stuff that they're carrying uh, isn't transferred. So, um it doesn't change form if it dies. So it's just a really, I don't know. I feel like it's a useless addition to this character. I don't really see the benefit in it, but of course, maybe you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. So it does describe that they have innate spell casting, uh, which is a charisma saving throw for these folks in the Uanti. So basically it just says that they can innately kind of cast spells, uh, but in the book, it only gives animal friendship for snakes only. They do have magic resistance, Uh, They do have advantage on saving throws against spells and magical effects. This one's really cool because I do find that a lot of characters sometimes have this ability and it's one that PCs tend to forget about. Um, So it'd be really interesting to build yourself a PC that has that and actually be one of their only abilities they can use, which is kind of forcing them to use it. So now it gets into the really interesting part. So as I said at the beginning, you want to use that of the mouse and type. You can actually decide which half is human, which half is, you know, snake like so on and so forth. So, they have different types listed within the book up to they have up to 5. So, they have 3 that they list in the regular stat block and then they do have another 2 of a rare type of malison that, you know, you can utilize for your PCs or your NPCs or what have you. So, and then they actually have a different stat block of attack capabilities based on which type you choose, obviously, right? So, if you're choosing that you have the upper body of a human, You're probably going to have more physical upper body strength attacks and so on and so forth. So they do have type 1, which is a human body and a snake head. They have type 2, which is a human head and body with snakes for arms. And then they have type 3, which is um, a human head and upper body with a serpent lower body instead of legs. And then they do actually have like a little bit of a smaller table which if you wanted to randomize, of course, you can, because in the books you can randomize anything with just rolling D10s and stuff like that. They do have the ability to choose a couple of different things for their arms, so you can choose to have like a cluster of snakes for arms, or one large snake for arms, or scaly humanoid with snake head for a hand kind of thing, which I thought was probably the weirdest one in my mind, was just having these really, really long snake, like regular human arms, and then have little tiny snake heads for hands, it's just, anyways. Um, and then, of course, for the other two rare types, they have type four. So human form with one or more serpent tails. And then type five, which is human form covered in scales. Which I feel like is more like your dragonborn. But, I mean, I, I digress. So I'm going to go through a couple of their attack options for the main three um, that they have within the actual book here. So for type one, which, a reminder, is a human body and a snake head. They do have a multi-attack ability, so it takes two attacks, two melee attacks, but it can also use its bite, but only once. So it does have a bite attack, uh, it does carry a scimitar, and it does carry a longbow. So, of course, with the human body, you have arms, so you can utilize weapons as per, like, a regular fighter. Is kind of how I see it. And for type 2, of course, you've got your human head and body with snakes for arms. (laughs) Um, so yes, yeah, so they have the ability to multi-attack similar to the type one, but it uses bite with its arms instead of its head. Uh, and then for type three, it does, of course, have same thing where it has multi-attack. But again, this is the human head and upper body with a serpentine lower body instead of legs. Um, so they do have a multi-attack. And so it can utilize uh, two melee attacks or it can try to constrict using its tail body. So it does have bite. As well as it can use a scimitar and a longbow. Again, it has arms like a humanoid. But then with its base, it can attempt to constrict someone. Um, and then, of course, that leads to being grappled, which, as everybody knows, is my favorite thing in the world. So... But yeah, so it's very interesting that you can kind of decide which direction you want to go with your character build with this. Um, And as I said, they do have the rare types of type four and five, which four was the human form with one or more serpentine tails, and then five, which is the human form covered in scales, which again, reads to me as Dragonborn, but it uses the same stat block build, but just has its regular multi attacks. It has bite and then it can carry a scimitar and a longbow. So, yeah, I feel like if you wanted to play a more safe version of the Malison, you would probably go for the rare types of 4 and 5 if you're playing a PC, just because said they read as Dragonborn. And if you're not feeling overly creative with how to do your attacks, that's definitely a direction I would go. But honestly, like as I said, I think my favorite part of these guys is their customizability. Just for, in the sense of being a player, it would be interesting to build one of these just simply because I can basically be creative with whatever I want. Um and get creative to, like, the environment of the world. Like, if it is definitely more of a swampy place, maybe you would do a snake base for your character so that it can slither around a little bit easier. But again, interested on your guys' thoughts on whether or not these guys' speed should increase if they are slithering on a tail. Um, and honestly, like I was imagining in my head, I feel like Adam would definitely put together a army of these guys, but use every variant, just for the sake and fun of describing it. To, it, to his players that's just all I could imagine in my head but absolutely interested in your guys' thoughts um, I think they are very interesting and a lot of fun so honestly like, what's your guys' opinions what do you think your favorite variant would be what would you guys use so definitely throwing it back to you to kind of finish this one off um, but obviously audience you can follow me on Instagram at omegao which is actually 0-M-E-G-A-0 or just listen to a lot of the older episodes to uh, get used to my amazing wits uh, but yeah, have a great week, everyone.
1: Yeah. I would totally mix and match these guys and ramp up the body horror. 100%. Like, why wouldn't you Right? Like having,
0: um, having the variance between the, their forms is what is going to cause your party to take a step back. And, uh, it's always a great moment to look at a mix of enemies in front of you and try to figure out which one is the one you take down first. Like we mentioned earlier with abominations that, um, they're your strategists and it gives you as a DM an opportunity to be a strategist. The mountains are strategists too. Very much so. And gives you as a DM an opportunity to be a strategist against your players.
1: Yeah. And actually that leads into the fact that Megan doesn't like these guys turning into medium snakes. She doesn't like that. She thinks it's dumb, but Megan sees it from a, a player yeah, standpoint, yeah. right? This is not about adding to the action economy. This is about fucking escaping. This is about getting away. This is your retreat factor. Your Malisons are still smart enough to live another day. Would you think inside of Yuan-Ti temples and old ruins and stuff,
0: there are little snake-sized holes that lead in little tunnels just to get away along these main thoroughfares and hallways?
1: It's right in the lore all the way through it. We'll talk about it next
0: week. Oh, fantastic. Cool. The other thing that Megan brought up that she doesn't like is the fact that these guys get suggestion three times a day. Normally we don't get into a big spell breakdown in the middle of our mob episode, but here's why this is important. Suggestion is a second level enchantment spell. It takes an action to cast. It has a range of 30 feet. Um, I like its material components because like one of them is like a snake's tongue. Yeah. Right. Or or a little bit of honey and a drip of oil. Oh, like no, you have and, a honey, and. Yeah. Like you have a honeyed tongue. Or it's or snake sna- Or it's a snake oil. Yeah. yeah. I like that. But it lasts up to eight hours. Don't sleep on that. It lasts forever. right? Yeah.
1: And I mean, it's for bard, sorcerers, warlocks, and wizards. Any arcane spellcasters. Of casters. course, you want tea. Yeah. Um, so with it, you get to sejorst. Uh, when you're making up words. So uh,
0: <laughs> you ahead. get to suggest. That one wasn't intentional. Um, you get to suggest a course of activity limited to a sentence or two. And magically influence that creature that you see within range, um, as long as they can see or understand what you say. Creatures that, of course, can't be charmed or anything like that are immune to this effect. But the sug- but on top of that, the suggestion must be worded in such a manner as to make the course of action sound more reasonable. Asking the creature to stab itself, for example, or throw itself into a pit, um, immolate itself, or do any other obviously harmful act ends the spell. So there's not just... Yeah, this is
1: not an immediate suicide spell.
0: Yeah. So the target makes that wisdom saving throw after you give them the suggestion. Yeah. On a failed save, it pursues that course of action that you described to the best of its ability. Okay. It does not make them superhuman, though. It doesn't make them superhuman. No, you're completely right. Now, the suggested course of action can continue for the entire duration of eight hours. So, uh, one of my favorites is, go dig a
1: pit. Dig a hole there. I think of the comic book Preacher. Now, oh, yeah, pe- yeah. Pe- people will be familiar with the, with the TV show, but my favorite thing... Now, you can't do it for suggestion, because... The idea is that he has the word of God. And when he tells people to do things, they have to do them. They have to until they're told to stop. So he tells someone to count every grain of sand on this beach. And then they stumble upon that character again, like three dozen issues later. He is emaciated. He's got a long beard. He's not, he hasn't showered in weeks. He has counted every grain of sand on the beach to the best of his ability. And he is like, he hasn't slept uh, oh, except geez. exhaustion. Like, he, there's nothing else that he can do except this. I like the idea of, yeah, uh, kill everybody in here. Murder all of the slaves. That can be one of the suggestions.
0: Yeah, as long as it doesn't do any self-harm, yep. you're golden, right? Now, one of the things, though, if it if the task is completable within that eight hours, um, the spell will end once that task is completed.
1: So you're wasting this on a make me a cup of tea.
0: Yes, Right? Uh, Use this for your eight hour tasks, for your longer tasks. Don't use this for like a command level spell, right? Now, you can also specify additional conditions that will trigger a special activity during the duration, right? Uh, For example, you might suggest a knight to give her warhorse to the first beggar she meets. If the condition isn't met before the spell expires, the activity isn't performed.
1: Sure again you have to keep it simple though you only get a couple sentences yeah if you want it to be a more complicated thing you got to cast it again yeah and if you or any one of your
0: allies harms the target the spell is going to end
1: that doesn't make any sense to me but sure why not that's just how charm works do they remember that they've been charmed at the end of this it doesn't say that like they do with friends if if it doesn't say it then no i would say no I would
0: say they look at their hands and be like, why was I doing this? They would not recall who told them to do it. What have I done? Yeah, right? This is going to be your uh, werewolf call ahead for a couple weeks from now. This is going to be your werewolf coming to after a full moon night of ravaging. Yeah. Right? Just what the
1: fuck just happened. I have a full moon night of ravishing. Anyway, I just, okay. There's not enough. There are so many parts to this stat block because there are all of these different variants. Yeah. Right? There are so many different attacks listed for all the different variants, but I guess the thing to really focus on here is that if it gets a bite, it has minimal piercing and decent poison damage for a CR3. Yep. Uh, the Constrict attack is uh, that it may or may not have, depending on whether or not it has a tail, is similar to the Abomination but with slightly less damage and the lower escape DC. Uh, if it has a Scimitar attack, it's stuck with the standard Scimitar slashing damage and the Longbow is better piercing damage than the bite attack, but only the type one has the same 2d6 poison that the bite has. Like, there's a lot going on here. And I guess that the the bite has the poison because it has a snake head and therefore produces its own venom, but but others don't. Like, there's a lot of conditional shit going on here. Um, it We could spend a whole episode really getting into the different kinds of malisons and yeah. their, their tactics and whatnot. But generally speaking... These are your nobility cast. Yeah, yeah. that can really mix it up. Like they're going to fight a rough, brutal fight.
0: I mean, if you remember those like the polymorph and antipathy and sticks to snakes that the abominations get, your malisons are going get this get that as well to add on top of everything, right? Like you have so much customizability, so many options to do with these things. Get creative, I want to say.
1: Yeah, and you can be a little creative. Like It's got 12d8 plus 12 hit points, and that's beefy for a CR3. Yep. Um, But let's be honest. You're not running into one of these at a time. This is a mob. You'll be encountering multiples at a time. You're not going to run into an Abomination by itself. It's going to have three of these around it. Mm -hmm. This pushes us up into Tier 3 easily. You are going to be encountering these guys in groups. So... They're pretty deadly for their CR, but are they worth the headache for a dungeon master to track all the differences among all the different kinds of Malisons? Are you going to... Like, at, at what point are you like, oh, this was the one with the snake arms. That one's the one with the head. This was the one that can constrict over here. If you don't have the minis or the icons yeah. set up, like, this can be a real problem. You're doing theater of the mind. I'm not going to have more than, like, two or three of these guys in a battle. Well, and if you do, I, I
0: would say... One of the things you do, you pre-build, of course, your Malisons. You have you have their stats pre-assembled uh, and build little groups that you just keep together, right? Yeah. So you'll have your Malison with the snake arms, your Malison with the tail, and the Malison with the fangs, right? That's a little three-person unit, and that's going to cover the west side of the battle, while your exactly identical group is going to manage that side, so you can help— figure it out in your brain and keep order of it in your brain a little bit easier, right? Um, I'm the all, variety I'm is going to come in with uh, not necessarily with each individual being different, but with making sure that they are unique in their little unit, not necessarily in the battle as a whole.
1: You can still use clothes and coloration variances yep. to tell the difference between them. So you have some management to do with this as a dungeon master. Now... We talked briefly about, um, Dave mentioned the bite and the shape changer ability, uh, for the pure blood. And, uh, it was Brad that talked about the polymorph into snakes, um, the snake antipathy and the sticks to snakes, but there are actually three more as well that apply. Um, any Yuan T can have chameleon skin, which just means that they get advantage on stealth checks made to hide.
0: Okay. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's not it's not invisibility. It's not a perfect uh, blending into the background, but it's close enough.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, the other one, which is really cool, any UNT can do this. They can shed their skin as a bonus action to get free from a grapple or to pull out of shackles or anything else. That's to that escape. is
0: flavorful as sh- flavorful as shit. They
1: can only do it is. once a day, and it's but then it has to spend one minute eating its shed skin. And it regains hit points equal to half its hit point maximum when it does that, which is so gross, yucky. Yeah,
0: and all you want to get this,
1: all you want to, including get a pure blood. Yeah,
0: <laughs> just yeah. like eating eating your skin suit, gross. Yeah, that's that's gross. Oh, what are you doing? What, are you
1: eating chips? Who got <laughs> you chips? Nope. 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 Crunch, crunch, crunch. <laughs> or even even different from that. Like I put the lotion on my skin. Uh, speaking of, there's another one, and this one is called Acid Slime. This one is for the Abomination, the Malison, and the Anathema okay, as well. Yeah. So
0: Not the Pure Blood.
1: No. As a bonus action, the UNT can coat its body in a slimy acid that lasts for one minute. A creature that touches the UNT hits it with a melee attack while within five feet of it, or is hit by the Constrict attack, takes 1d10 acid damage on top of it. Hmm. Cool. So, there's no save on that. You just take it. There's not a lot of things in the game that is just
0: like, if if you're under the constrict or, or you're under this action, you're just taking this damage. I like this.
1: It, it makes sense. Yeah. I, I like this a lot. Yeah. Okay. So um, before we wrap up with our, our tactics and all the other crazy shit, yeah, sure. um, I just want to thank everybody that gave us a hand building this episode. I also want to thank those of you who have been donating. It makes a world of difference to us to get those donations in um it's kept the lights on here uh
0: especially during the pandemic where things have gotten a little bit more complicated with the new format that's helpful
1: yeah it it really is and so um we are constantly looking at ways to update our um our mic setup and our software and whatnot so we can give you guys a better product so i wanted to thank those of you that have that have uh donated and i want to encourage other people to think about checking out our store so you're not just tossing money at us for free but if you like donating if you are a altruistic person then <laughs> then of course we will love you forever Or just a fan and i just want everyone to please consider tossing a couple bucks away so we can buy dan a fucking dictionary so we can learn how to pronounce these goddamn words and stop making shit up
0: if they buy the dictionary do i have to read it
1: yes oh
0: yes you do I want to remind everybody that on. <laughs> I want to remind everybody that you can find us on all of social media as well. We're on Instagram, we're on Facebook, and primarily, it seems these days, r Mimic on Reddit. That's where you're going to get a hold of Adam and I and Dave and Brad and those guys far easier. Um, you could also reach us uh, through our email at info at itsamimic.com because we love hearing from you guys. We love talking with you guys, and any questions that you send us. We'll get added to a, a special mailbag episode in the future. So, Adam, as we move on here, we're going to talk about our mob structures, how we build our yuan societies. Let's grab the dice. I want to know how you're building your typical city first. Like, just in terms of numbers, what are we looking at for, like, a city-state and what their systems are. Can we do that next episode? Because I break down cities. So, next week we're going to be breaking down cities. So, I don't want to know necessarily what we're doing for cities, Let's go more granular. Let's go for our encounters. How are you building these encounters for, say, a Tier 2 party? Because that's, sure. that's where want to are really going to play in the most. It's tier 2. Yeah. And then they'll bleed into Tier 3. So let's roll the dice on that one.
1: I got a tree. I got a 10. All right. So there are really, in my brain, four kinds of yuan t encounters. Okay. One is you discover a plot in another city that's not a one U1T city. At which point you're running into a pure blood, and it's subterfuge and espionage. Do you give
0: that pure blood, like say you take the pure blood uh, as an attack at its home or where it's staying in residence? It just has pet snakes.
1: There will be sneaky things around, but I don't think that it wants to. It's not going to do it on purpose, right? I will make it shed its skin once a day, but it's going to do it in private at night. Yeah, and you may find flecks of shed skin here and there, right? It, it's not going to uh, really. Um, let anybody else know that it is snake-like or you on T. I'm just imagining the uh, water-deep, deep uh, deep noir-level detective feature
0: where you're trying to find the dandruff killer. (laughs) Well, there you go. (laughs) Um, uh, uh,
1: The next encounter in my head is you're infiltrating the city. Yep. Uh, And that can be whatever you need it to be. Like, that's its own weird, unique mob thing. When you think about um, Drow or uh, the Sahuagin or the um, even the Goblinoid Encampment, right? When you get behind enemy lines, that's a whole different story. You don't know what you're running into. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to be designing the encounters with mostly Purebloods, and I'm going to let my players know to avoid the Malisons and the Abominations when at all possible. So that I can chain these things together encounter counter after encounter after encounter. Yep. Because if they end up against an abomination, but they're in the heart of the city, even if they win, they're low on resources to get out. Oh, yeah. right. Yeah. There's not a whole lot of place to rest. So it's going to be snakes. It's going to be brood guard, right? The third one is you run into them def- defending the borders. Sure. Right. Yep. In my head, this is also you being captured at the same time.
0: This is where you're going to find some like you're fighting some of the slaves, some brood guard, and purebloods as well. Like there's yeah, there, there, may, might, there be might be, one be a malison. or two malisons, but not much.
1: This is going to be yeah, your standard patrol or your guard or whatever yeah. you're going to run into, um, and be careful because these CRs will stack very quickly with these guys. But the last one, and I'm going to talk about this next episode, is when you run into the cults because they're cults, the T cults. Of humans that exist in other cities are real things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, for me,
0: I you know you you kind of hit all the bases there quite quite well. Um, I like bringing Malisons in because they are very um, weird and otherworldly, almost like they add that weird aspect to it. So I like using Malison uh, Malisons for other purposes as well. I this is gonna possibly catch a lot of flack not necessarily from you though because you did this to us you took malisons and just went but what if they're goblins and that was a great three session little campaign arc we had where you're like they're goblins but this one's spinning venom and this one's got a 15 foot tail to it
1: yeah i it's funny because i didn't even think about UNT when i did that i just made snake goblins yeah they had just been perverted by a snake god and they could unhinge their jaw and swallow small creatures Yeah, and shit. Like it was, it was gross. It was cool, but it was gross.
0: And, and I know we've said that in straight lore of, uh, five E you want to, especially when you get to the Malisons and the abominations are humans that have been changed to this full stop, right? That you might get some other humanoids coming in as brood guard, but that's as deep and down that trail as they go. Um, using that flavor for like an isolated tribe of goblins or fuck snake themed kobolds would be pretty cool especially if they have a very serpentine green dragon that they worship you want i know we complained earlier about the draconic being a part of this but if you lean into it it could be pretty damn cool too
1: yeah it could be it doesn't take much for you to reskin a dragon to take away its breath weapon and its limbs And have a gigantic fucking snake,
0: too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, This is homebrewing. So let's talk a little bit more about homebrewing, specifically if you're going with um, rolling one of these guys up as a player character. Sure. Okay? Um, Now, as we said, your option is being a pure blood. If you roll a pure blood, you're going to get an increase to your charisma by two. That makes sense. You are imposing your will on people. Yeah. Charisma. Um, Your intelligence also goes up by one. Very rare we see two of the social stats get raised or two of the mental, uh, sorry, two of the mental stats being raised or two of the physical stats being raised. When they do that, it's kind of weird. They often, in the design, like to give you one of the mental, one of the physical. Yeah. So, you know, these guys aren't necessarily your frontline fighters. They are all about the, the long game, the mental game.
1: Yeah. I also like the fact, too, that they've got, I could make an illusionist. Right? Oh, yeah. yeah. I could make a a, a kind of wizard with that bump to intelligence and then just have amazing charisma saves as well, right? Like, that's. Now, like their humanoid human counterparts,
0: uh, pure bloods mature at the same rate as humans. Their alignments, I mean, they're devoid of most emotion. And we've said, by and large, they lean towards neutral evil.
1: Yeah. They don't give a shit about laws. They do give a shit about rituals, and but specifically only theirs. Yeah.
0: Um, as with their normal me- human selves, they are medium-sized. They're going to be the same general size as humans. Yeah. And they walk the same speed as humans. Sure. Okay? Where they deviate is they get dark vision of 60 feet. Well, I mean, who doesn't? Dragonborn. Fearbulg. Human. Like, their choices of who gets dark vision and who doesn't. It just boggles my mind. Look... Yeah, these things have been blessed by evil gods. It, and, and It does track
1: for them. This like, tracks more fits. than some of the others. Yeah, you're not wrong.
0: They do get some innate spellcasting next, which they get the ability to cast suggestion, like we've mentioned a couple times uh, already. However, it's coming in at third level. You don't get it right away. And it's only once per long rest, once per day. Okay? Sure. And regardless of what your spell... You could be a wizard. Charisma is going to be your spellcasting trait for this one. Okay. That's the big one. Next, you get, um, I mean, you get the Poison Spray Cantrip. Let's get the easy one out of the way here. Sure. I would rather you get a Bite Attack, but fine. Yeah. Um, but you get Animal Friendship and a limited amount of times per day. It's kind of kooky until you realize that uh, you get it with just snakes. Just snakes. You get, you get tongue. Yeah. That's, that's what it is. Yeah. Next, you get Magic Resistance, which is the same as the Dwarf one, almost, where you just get, say, uh, Advantage. On saves against magical spells or spell-like effects.
1: That's fucking huge. That is the best thing so far.
0: Yeah, um, it's weird. It's like weirdly placed here. Why? Why you, you are want blessed
1: to- by massive gods? Like you are inherently magical creatures. This tracks for me. You are more magical than a halfling or a lizard folk. Like it makes sense. You have directly in your lineage been blessed. By a, a serpent god. Okay, but why wouldn't Dragonborn get the same level of thing? Don't don't get them mixed up. It's not that yuan T don't deserve this. It's a dragonborn do and they've been done dirty. Yeah, okay, I'm with you there. Um,
0: I mean, next moving on, they get poison immunity. Sure,
1: yep, next yep, cool. from both damage
0: and, and condition. Yeah. Yep. And they can this one's weird to me. They can speak common, yep. sure. Draconic, we mentioned boo. it, boo. And abyssal. Right. Let me get into that with the God stuff next episode. Cool. We can do it. Now, we now know what the players do. What kind of insight can we pull from these four homebrewing?
1: What's interesting here is that the DMG that always has like, oh, if you want to be a kobold, add this to this one. They don't have that. No, they don't. Not for UNT. Because UNT are so radically different. They don't even have it for the UNT pure blood. It's There's no like, just add this, this, and you get the poison immunity. There's none of that. When you want to play a noble... Right, an NPC noble. You just grab a pure blood and make it a noble. Yeah. Right. You don't. You don't use the noble stat block. Right. That's really crazy to me. So, one of the things that I'm gonna think about when I'm I'm doing the homebrew, like I did to the goblins, I I should have looked at this at the time, um, and, but it would have standardized it a little bit more. I look at this because it's only pure blood and it's not the others. Mm-hmm. It's pretty basic. Sure. But I'm going to say that when I'm homebrewing, it's going to have dark vision. I think that a lot of UNT temples and stuff are going to be in deep jungle and underground. Oh and, yes, for sure. Um, I can see there being weird little UNT communities in the underdark, even. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. I could see them having. I can see them going up against the gith a lot, especially in like limbo. You can have if, if they could find some way That's to jump. If they could find some way to ward their city against the chaos of limbo. I could see them there being the, the evil society against the Githzerai that are there. Because they are they are all about growing power. It makes sense that these guys will want a planeswalk or a yeah. planes slither, I guess. <laughs> so, um,
0: I, I really like that, especially when you look into they're that ancient civilization. And we've only ever seen one other like really big mention of an ancient human civilization. And that's the Netheral which play heavily into, say, the rhyme of the Frostmaiden. There's a big Netheril faction there. Yeah. Right? Um, so if you wanted to keep them on the material plane and have this weird uh, battle back and forth, having them with the Netheril and, and the magic kingdom that was that, I mean, that plays for an incredibly intriguing campaign.
1: Yeah. It's weird that these guys don't have an inherent hatred of elves, which would beat them back. Yeah. Apparently, orcs do, and... You know, everybody's got their own little thing that they hate. It's with t Hate humans primarily, by the looks They of don't it? even hate. They're just like, hey, you guys are cattle. Yeah.
0: It's it it's kind of weird. Now, I did mention earlier that we were gonna cover something a little bit later when it came to um, running a UNT and homebrewing as a DM. And this is going to go on uh, fall back into some personality traits that they have. Yeah. In Volos, there is a little DH table that gives you some insights into it. So Um, Adam, I want you to roll me a D8 real quick and tell me what number you get.
1: Uh, I got a three.
0: You got a three. So, Adam, you prefer to be alone rather than among other creatures, including your own kind. Like... That makes sense. Try again. One more time.
1: I got a five.
0: Five. I believe I am superior to all others of my cast. That's true of me, though. I mean... Both of those are. I mean, you believe... Yeah, yeah, that's true. Believing doesn't necessarily
1: make it true, but it can.
0: But not necessarily is.
1: If you believe it, it it will happen. If you okay, build it, they
0: this will isn't. Come. This isn't a. I knew you're going to feel the dreams of this shit and fuck you. <laughs> Anyways, if you need some inspiration on um, running your pure blood who has in, uh, infiltrated a kingdom, going to this personality chart really really helps. And there's a bunch of really cool options here, um, including weird things like I only eat the upper crust of food. Like it, I have incredibly high standards for food. These guys are like nothing. Oh, less I'm like only the are. top of a pie. <laughs> that would, that's what I thought you meant there. I mean, I mean, it's some would say it's the best part of the pie.
1: Anyways, no one says that. I do. You're very strict. You don't
0: eat the pie filling. The pie filling's good, but the top crust is like important. I I get okay. Little thing about Dan. Um, there is a difference between a tart and a pie. Yeah. And a um meringue. Yes. And and. and motherfuckers need to understand that, that there is a difference between a tart and a pie specifically and it a is a pie that has an upper crust a pie has an upper crust there's a pie the amount, shell yeah yeah the amount of times I see like big restaurants these people cook for a fucking living marketing I don't know a blueberry pie and it's open face. It's a fucking tart. And they're like, "No, it's a pie." Like, I, yeah. "Listen here, White Spot, you sons of
1: bitches. It's a fucking tart." Nobody knows a White Spot is. It's a BC it's thing. It's a only. BC
0: thing only. There's a bunch of people listening in BC. You get it. But they it's a fucking regional restaurant. It's one of my favorite restaurants, but every single spring they bring up their blueberry fucking pie, and it's a tart. And I want st- to I used to work for White Spot. It's the restaurant that made me stop cooking at restaurants. There's a thing there. There's a story. We won't get into it now,
1: but fuck.
0: Oh, so pies like, need, tar- uh, need tops.
1: Wow, that was a hell of a fucking segue. And I will also say this. It's not a tart, what they serve. It's technically a flan. Yeah, you're right. Anyways,
0: so that will be a decent portion of what we can find in 5e on one T and pies. But we're only about half done. Apparently.
1: Is there a, <laughs> is there a pie chart in the... God, there, more, sh- there should be. I feel like there should be more pie charts and graphs and other things. I, I think we're getting too nerdy about that. Like, too hyper...
0: Like, you're a guy who likes your spreadsheets. I, I am adverse to them.
1: Yeah, I don't understand why it's simple organization at a glance. Oh, when, it's- Whenever I find a chart in the DMG, I'm very happy. You are, yeah. I just wish that there would be some sort of... Well, you get it on Reddit all the time. People, like, break down how many monsters... Are actually immune to radiant damage. Useful information to have.
0: <sighs> yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of it comes from the fact that I am a bit of a sports fan when it comes to hockey, and I get really frustrated when I see people like comparing useless side stats, and that's all done in
1: well, spreadsheet. You know, yeah. I'm. I can talk about sportscasters another time.
0: Yeah. Anyways, um, everybody, don't forget to come back next week when we're going to cover uh, another four kinds of U1T as well as, as we've mentioned a few times, their gods and the cults around them. That'll be it for this episode of the It's a Mimic podcast. If you'd like to support us, you can head on over to www.itsamimic.com and hit our fancy donate button or tell some of your friends and the rest of your d d party about the podcast. We're available on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube, as well as most podcast apps. Thank you and stay safe out there.
2: Thank you for listening to another It's a Mimic production. Inquiries, shout-outs, requests, and mailbag questions can be sent to info at itsamimic.com.
5: Hey, Dave again. Uh, It's important to remember that the yuan T can turn into different kinds of snakes. And what I wanted to do was just go over what some of those different kinds of snakes could be and some of the features of them. So the first one, of course, is a poisonous snake. These things are very basic. Their AC is 13. they got two hit points. They do have a swim speed of 30 feet as well as a regular walking speed of 30 feet. Their dex and constitution are the only two that are above a 10. uh, But their strength is a 2 which is still higher than their intelligence at a 1. They do get blind sight of 10 feet and a passive perception of 10. They're a challenge rating of 1 eighth. Okay, so they're very, very simple. They do get a bite attack, which is plus 5 to hit. Uh, and it has a 5 foot reach. It does 1 piercing damage, and then the target has to do a constitution save uh, with the DC's 10, or else it takes 2d4 poison damage on a failed save, or half as much on a successful one. I mean, that's pretty basic. The more interesting one, though, I think, is the Swarm of Poisonous Snakes. Now, these things are a little bit stronger. Uh, They do have an AC of 14 and 36, or 8d8 hit points. Again, their swim and regular speed is 30 feet, uh, just like a regular poison snake. Their dexterity is 18, uh, and con is 11. That's the only two stats that are over a 10. Uh, their charisma is a three and their intelligence is a one. These guys aren't planning to do too much. They're a swarm, like, right? Uh, they do get damage resistance though to bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing and they are immune to being charmed, frightened, paralyzed, petrified, prone, restrained, and stunned. They also get blind sight out to 10 feet And passive perception is a 10. A swarm of poisonous snakes is a CR2. Now, what makes these guys really interesting is their swarm ability. The swarm can occupy the same space as a creature, but a creature can also occupy the same space as a swarm. The swarms can move through any opening large enough for a tiny snake, and it can't regain hit points or gain temporary hit points. So that's kind of a neat little feature that they have. For actions, they get a bite action. It's a plus six to hit, but this is interesting. The range is zero feet. They can't bite to the adjacent square. They have to be in the square with a character to attack them. Uh, And they can only attack one creature per round. They don't get a multi-attack here. So what they can do is 2d6 piercing damage or 1d6 piercing damage if the swarm is at half of its hit points or fewer. And again, on a successful hit, The target has to make a DC 10 con save or take 4d6 poison damage on a failed save or half as much on a successful one. That's how you're going to make these guys challenging, is is hitting with that poison damage. Uh, In addition to that, there is also the giant poisonous snake. Uh, These things are a CR 1 quarter. Their AC is 14. They got 11 hit points or 2d8 plus 2. And they've got the regular old swim slash walking speed or I guess slithering speed of 30 feet. Their dexterity and con are the only uh, attributes above a 10, uh, and their charisma and intelligence are quite lacking at charisma at a 3 and intelligence at a 2. For skills, they do get a perception of plus 2, and like the other uh, poisonous snakes, they have a blind sight out to 10 feet. These guys do get a melee weapon attack, which is a bite. It's a plus 6 to hit, but it's got 10-foot reach, which... Is kind of the main difference between the poisonous snake, the swarm, and the giant. It's The, the, the range on them is 0, 5, and 10, with the, poisonous, the giant poisonous snake being 10 feet. Uh, you don't get that often, that's kind of neat, and especially for a CR quarter, you can kind of make this work for you a little bit, uh, by having them hanging down from trees and so on. Now, on a hit, it does do 1d4 plus 4 piercing damage, and they've got to make a con save, this time it's a dc11 and they take 3d6 poison damage on a failed save, or half as much on a success. Honestly, I just like the idea of having these snakes kind of slithering all over the place, and, uh, you know, having your guys have to walk around them. You know, they're they're fine if they're over there, and they're not going to come at you, but if you get close to them, these things are going to strike, which I like the idea of using the giant poison snake for that, because, uh, you know, it's got that 10-foot reach, and, you know, maybe they're... Avoiding the swarm over here, and they're still within striking distance of the, the regular poisonous snake that's adjacent to them. But then there's this bigger snake hanging in the tree, and they try to walk under it, and it, of course, can't attack. So uh, you can kind of use these to add to the environmental damage as well. And, of course, if these things are actual UNT, t they can pop up and do all sorts of fun little things uh, that you wouldn't expect.
1: I like how Dave mentions that snakes are really good environmental hazards and yeah, whatnot. Yeah, okay. As opposed to actual monster creature encounters. Um, let's roll, and I, like, do you agree with him that that's how they should be used? Sure. I got a three. I got a six, man. I beat you every roll this, this it episode. It happens. Uh, okay, so, except when we rolled Snake Eyes at the beginning, which is the best thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm really happy with that. Um, so, my... Uh, <laughs> People aren't going to believe that it actually happened. No, it was, it was pretty fucking fun. <laughs> yeah. So, um... I, uh, I really like them as an environmental hazard they should be dealing with all of the time. I would even have it to the point where they're going to interrupt rests when you're behind enemy lines in the UNT culture.
0: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, when, I'm...
1: When you get into the city, snakes will appear
0: all of the time. Yeah. I, it's almost like they're drawn towards these, like, locuses of snake energy.
1: Yeah, kind of. I feel like... Um, no, no, I feel like, though, when your guys are... Hold up in a storage closet trying to get an hour-long rest, it really takes two hours because they cannot calm down enough because there are tons of snakes just coming and going. Okay. Like, there's always something. And if you don't want to get bitten, you have to stay still. You're not doing anything, but that's stressful, so it takes more time.
0: Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that one. I, I like that. Um, I like having them as an environmental uh, threat as well, I think, Really, it's not just snakes. It's it's all of these. Once you get a high enough level, these lower level things tend to just be like background noise. Yeah. Nah, man. Once they become background noise, that gives you the carte blanche as a dungeon master to use them in any fucky way you want, and as environmental, eh, environmental as environmental hazards. I love them. I I really like to use these things as. Um. I think you hit the nail on the head as limitations
1: for rest. I think that's... Use them as omens. Oh, right? yeah Like th- there are lots of ways to use them besides just... Can like, you imagine your orc character like walking
0: down the trail and stopping dead, going like just pale-faced looking, at goes, the red and black snake crossed our path.
1: Yeah, I, I, I... Yes, there's a lot of really fun things that you can do with these guys. You know what I'm going to do? Anytime that you do a stealth check at all... It's actually now a three-part skill challenge because there's fucking snakes everywhere in the UNT society. Yeah. Right? It is not that simple anymore. Something to think about. I I would be very hesitant to go into a UNT city.
5: These guys do get 10 feet of blindsight and a... And I haven't
6: drank lager since I was back in the UK and already that has been... Too many years. Nine years. Wow. Nine years. Uh, and it's uh, it's about two o'clock in a Friday afternoon, but it's COVID, so what else are you going to do other than drink harp lager and, uh... <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's get on with this.
1: Now I actually can do that somatic component just a to... Motherfuck.
2: Thank you for listening to an It's a Mimic production.
1: <laughs> okay, you're done. Gary. <laughs>
4: <laughs>